Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, uh, fellow Silm Film Project listeners and participants. Ooh, that was pretty good. This is Trish Lambert. Thank you very much. Um, and this is not Dave KL. This is Trish Lambert. So Dave is unfortunately not with us today. He is, well, I mean, he's unfortunate, unfortunately for us, he's not with us, but fortunately for him, he's off traveling, doing family time travel and all that good stuff. So, But we That's will definitely right. miss him today. Um, and I am here with... Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, and we're here to talk about things Silmarillion. That's right. Yeah. Thanks, Trish. So it's, yeah, sorry to miss Dave today. We had to go ahead and uh, carry on um, today because we had already missed last week. This is so we've uh, we've already rescheduled it one week because I was traveling last week to Midmoot, which was, was awesome. That's right. And can I give a little brief uh, 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 Midmoot report because we actually had a film film presentation um, at Midmoot. So uh, 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 Nick Poazzo and uh, Marie Prosser and uh, Carita Alexander were all there uh, at Midmoot, and uh, uh, Nick and Marie gave a gave a gave, gave a talk gave a presentation about uh about film film project and the adaptation and the uh the whole script um uh uh the whole script project and everything it was really really neat um and it was kind of you know it, it, it was making me you know one of the things which I felt that I don't know. I mean, you know, Nick and Marie. I don't know. I know you guys are both here today. I don't know if you guys were feeling it too, but I feel that there's there's there still seems to be some need. You know, this sort of this sense of need to justify this activity, right? Um, and of course, the confronting the um, the condemnation of this project is as merely uh as 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 merely fanfic right um and you know you guys mentioned that in your talk and and i think it's really important and you're you if if you may remember it was a long time ago now when i first gave the talk at the last myth moot um where i announced that we were going to do film film and talked about it um and it's a it's a on video it's you can find that on the website still i think um the very first um the way I led into it was talking about critfic and essentially, or not critfic, fanfic, and essentially, essentially apologizing for the fact that I myself had always been guilty of this. I had always been guilty of, like, for instance, I had used to, I, I, I had been accustomed when talking to my students, um, my English students, to sort of like say, like, we have to differentiate between, you know, doing, uh, doing analysis of the text and merely doing critfic, right? Which I, which I, which I sort of was realizing that I meant, in, I fully intended that to be an insult, essentially, um, you know, to differentiate from a like, you know, the intellectually sound and respectable relationship with the text, um, you know, and the perhaps fun, but, you know, much less intellectually respectable relationship with the text. And I just had to basically what changed for me was actually Tolkien, basically, the the realization that I have had as I have been studying Tolkien more over the last 10 years. Um, and it's so funny Side note on a side note, uh, so funny to think back to when I started my podcast and just 
one of the things that strikes me more than anything else when I look back over the, you know, we'll be we're coming up on 10 years, like nine, nine and a half years now, you know, since I started my podcast. Um, but uh, but 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 when I look back over the last decade of doing the Tolkien Professor uh, podcast, my primary thought is about um, how much I've learned. Like I look back at like myself 10 years ago and I was like, wow, I knew almost nothing back then. Holy cow, I've learned so much about Tolkien in the last 10 years talking about this stuff. But anyway, one of the things that I've really come to understand much better and come to see is basically how fuzzy that line, the line between fanfic and critical analysis was in Tolkien's own life. I don't mean like relationship with his work by fans. I mean his own criticism. I mean what is what is Sigurd and Gudrun? It's fanfic. It's it's Norse it's old Norse fanfic, right? What's what's the story of Kulervo? The place where like arguably his whole mythology began, right? Fanfic. It's Kalevala fanfic that he was writing, right? What's the fall of Arthur? Right. It's Arthurian fanfic. Like he was he just that's what he did. You know, that's what he did. It was such an essential. Even even Beowulf. Right? I just in the last month reread his um, the, the Beowulf edition that came out that Christopher published just a couple years ago. And um, and uh, even there, even there, even in his lecture notes uh, on Beowulf. Even in, and you can even see it coming out in his translation. His analysis of Beowulf is laced throughout with fanfic elements, right? You know, basically things where he is doing not just criticism of the words and sort of a a dispassionate and objective analysis of the text, but in uh, investing himself imaginatively into this and coming up with, with a reading, investing it with a story, which is, of course, a very plausible interpretation of the text, but it's it's far from the exclusive way the text could be understood. And what you can see happening is he's not just, he's not just analyzing the text. He's just talking about the text. He's, he's living there imaginatively, right? He's, he's moving in, right? That's what he does. Uh, and so, you know, get far from really needing to, uh, to sort of justify it. It's, it seems to me like the most Tolkienian kind of response to Tolkien's work. Uh, so anyway, I, 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 uh, uh, Nick and Marie, this is what I've been kind of mulling over since your presentation uh, before. And you know, I you think... know what's actually kind of interesting about that? Yeah. What's interesting about that is a few years ago I was taking a course and the professor I was taking the course under, I actually brought this t- topic up mm-hmm. and that professor shut me down. Said, yeah. nope, 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 nope. Totally different. Right. <laughs> Tolkien, what Tolkien did was totally different. It's like very interesting. Because I agree with you. I think it is. Well, I mean, the thing is, is it depends on how you define the term, right? I mean, basically, if you accept a, if, if you accept the derogatory definition of fan fiction, right? You know, if fan fiction is just by denotation, a derogatory subset of creative work, um, then no, you're right. not going to include, you're not going to be willing to, and you're a Tolkien person, you're not going to be willing to include anything that Tolkien wrote in that category. That's right. right? Um, it's all about how right. you define the category. Um, and, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I, thinking about like, for instance, the, the easiest example. Points out, 
Yeah, go ahead. I'm, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, I, mean, no, as, I was going to say, as Marie yeah. points out, yeah. many fanfic writers, the, the really earnest good ones, do an enormous amount of research. Absolutely. They really know the material to write the fanfic from, you know. So yeah, I mean that's I mean, that's totally like how Tolkien did it, you know. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Absolutely. Proceed. No, no I, I, I was just going to say. I mean, of course, you know, people may not. I mean, it's. It, I never thought of you know Tolkien's scholarly work as being connected to critfic, right? And I can, I can, I can easily imagine somebody being like, "Oh no, like the legend, the you know his his poetry about Sigurd and Gudrun isn't fanfic." Well, yes, it is. But like, so is the Volsunga saga. So is the Younger Edda. You know, so, so is Sir Thomas Mallory. So I mean, all of that. I mean, you. you you could put all that stuff in the same category, right? To sort of say there exists this like pre-existing creative world, you know, this pre-existing story. I mean, so is the Aeneid. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, there's actually a very august tradition about this. Um, um, Timothy Fisher's here. So is Wagner, <laughs> Timothy, right? Wagner's fan. <laughs> Uh, it's this. It's it's. I mean, it's all of true. that. It's it's like when you're like, but but again, obviously, my point is not to insult any of these things, but to say, this is part. This is the tradition. The, this distinction, ultimately, between doing your own thing, being creative, just inventing your own story, and not just going over and like using somebody else's material. That's a modern bias. That's how we think now. But that's not. That's not traditional. In the old days, it was. It was almost exactly reversed. And if you weren't investing yourself in old stories and retelling old stories, then, then, you know, it's, 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 uh, th then you like, what was the point of you? Right. I mean, that was lame. Um, uh, uh, to to you know to uh you know Chaucer mentions making things new as a poet not as a as a boast but like as an accusation like you know he was like deflecting the accusation of of making things new right and of course he was half joking at the time as he always is or so often but anyway the point is it's this is uh, i think that you know for these reasons uh fanfic gets a bad rap now of course one has to admit as lots of other um you know, as, as as many people have have noted that certainly, obviously, there's a very, very great deal of bad fa fan fiction out there. Naturally, of course, there is. But of but of what genre isn't that true? Um, and, uh, you know, so but anyway, you know, the 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 um, the fundamentally uh, uh the fundamental project, I think, is something which is more. And this this is why I think it's one of the reasons why I think Tolkien did it. One of the reasons I think that Tolkien thought that way, you know, because he um, he was he was like part of the part of that tradition. Right. You know, part of, you know, the, those those the, that like to the greatest compliment to give to these works, the greatest way to invest in them is not just to sit back like a modern scholar and detach yourself from them and, and talk about them, um, but to engage with them in the way that people engaged with them back then. Anyway, um, but Tony, exactly. You're right. Tony Mead says there's a lot of bad published fiction out there too. I absolutely agree. Um, I absolutely agree. But of course, this is the same argument people make about fantasy as well. Like, but there's so much really bad fantasy. Well, of course, there's a lot of really bad fantasy. There's a lot of bad realistic fiction too. Um, I, you know, but, but yeah, so it's, um, this is, um, this is, uh, this is, I think, a, 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 a sort of a, 
a big field. But a fun digression uh, and sort of in defense of, of the Silm <laughs> Film Project and what we're doing, and in particular with the work that, uh, that Nick and Marie and Carita and Hakan and Phil and, and all the other people who have been contributing and working with that, um, uh, that's been really that's been really great. And I, uh, um, I would, you know, urge people, you know, who are listening, uh, to, 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 to get involved. This has been so much fun and, uh, it has been more fun for me. The more people I've seen get involved, the more this has become, a, you know, this sort of big collaboration and, you know, uh, to some extent, of course, I mean, our, our responsibility here on the show uh, is to kind of forge ahead and kind of break the ground, right, and start the discussion happening. But really, that's how I see our role is just to to get the ball rolling as far as the discussion is concerned. And I'm really interested to kind of come along behind and see, you know, what's happening and talk to people who are thinking things through. And I love I love um, reading what people have posted on the discussion board and responding. It's one of the reasons why you you guys will have noticed that, especially of lately, like in season two, my like I spend almost half of each episode talking about the things that people said about the previous episode. I mean, you know, the number of times we've barely gotten to the episode in question, uh, because I'm so, uh, interested to talk with what, to talk about what you guys have been, um, have been thinking about. But anyway, um, uh, interesting. Nick points out that if you do a Google video search for Silmarillion film, we're now number five. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> There you go. Uh, there you go. Let's, let's keep moving up the rankings there. We're going to we'll 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 take over pretty soon. We'll have people uh, thinking they have to apply to us for permission. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, cool. So uh, let me let's I, we, I want to jump. We have uh, we have a lot to talk about. I, I sort of realized with a sense not quite of panic, but of uh, well, awe, frankly, how much we have to cover. Do, do, do you realize, do you realize something? I just like, I didn't realize this until I sat down right before the beginning of the episode with the table of contents of the published Silmarillion. Do you realize that we spent an entire season on two chapters, one of which is extremely short, right? Of the beginning of days and of Aule and Yavanna, of the coming of the elves and the captivity of Melkor, some of that material got in there too. So maybe two and a half chapters, okay? Two and a half chapters <laughs> for all of season one. Um, but in, the, so we're in, we're in episode six today, right? So we've, we've got what, eight total episodes counting today, right. counting today's episode. We've, you know, we've done five and there are 13 in the season. So we've got eight more episodes counting the one we're going to talk about today. And in those eight episodes, we're going to be covering one, two, three, four, five chapters of the published Silmarillion in those eight episodes. After having spent an entire 13 episode season on two and a half <laughs> chapters, we're now going to be covering five whole chapters <laughs> in eight episodes it's isn't that terrifying nick yeah i I was trying to avoid terror um, that is terrifying but it is uh it's kind of um it's kind of amazing so uh anyway uh just just a little uh food for thought so do we um, need to we don't need to rethink right we're committed to this course i think so 
I think so. I feel 90% confident that we can do this and carry on. Um, but next week I want to Marie's very pragmatic. About... Marie said, look at this way. We won't have to, we won't have to, um, invent as much invent material. As much material. <laughs> true, true, true. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, now this will be, this will, this will, this, this will definitely be fun. Um, We'll come back to this. We'll come back to this next time. Uh, next, I, I, I'd be fine I, if we ditch Bob Way. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel like uh, I feel like the next episode, episode seven, is going to be to me is is the this is where like, if we can get through episode seven, we'll be fine. But to me, episode seven is the really is going is going to be the really the really hard one. Um, that's the one the critics are going to – it's going to make or break us with the critics, <laughs> It's, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, okay. Um, so let's, uh, let's do – we have, but we, have, we have important announcements that we can't uh, miss because this is very exciting. There's so much going on. We are now in the middle uh, of the annual fall uh, fundraising campaign to support the Signum Animal Annual Fund. And as always, this, of course, is a time of celebration of all of the things that we do at Signum and Mythgard. And so there's a lot going on. So I want to make sure that everybody knows about the special events that are coming up. Um, and, uh, some of them very, very soon. So, uh, first of course, the, 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 the general note, um, I, I hope that you will consider supporting the Signum Annual Fund. Uh, the Signum University Annual Fund is what makes all of this possible. Signum University is the one that has the budget that pays for all the things that we have to pay for. Um, all of our, 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 our files and file storage and file sharing for the podcast, which is actually, um, uh, since our podcast is enormous right now, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot. We actually just, just lately within the last year added, um, that we made some, I say we, as if I had the first thing to do with it, which I did not, but, uh, some of my wonderful people at Signum University made the shift where now we're hosting all of the Tolkien professor files off of our virtual servers, um, instead of a different service that I had been using from time immemorial when I started the podcast, um, which is, and this is, this is much better. Um, but I was able to see, you know, when that happened, um, how much it, how much it, you know, how much the Tolkien professor files are still getting downloaded and how much that all costs oh, uh, for that us is to, very to cool. maintain, um, which is a lot. So, still alive and well. Still alive and well, and there's a lot of uh, uh, any, anyway. So, you know, all of the all of the the production costs and the maintenance costs and everything, even for the Silmarillion stuff, is 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 pretty expensive. Um, and you know, this is you know not to mention my own time and everything. Um, uh, that is to say, like my own time is made available by the fact that uh, Signum University exists. If it ceased to exist, <laughs> that's so would most of my time, uh, as I'd have to like go out and do something else, presumably. Um, but anyhow, um, so I, I do hope that if you have been enjoying this, you will consider even making a, even making a modest donation. Uh, you know, if like even a, you know, a fraction of the people who listen to the podcast donated, you know, just a small sum, 10 or 20 bucks, it would make a huge difference, uh, for Signum University and all the things that we're trying to accomplish. So, um, I hope that you will consider that. And as part of the, um, as part of the celebration of 
you know, our programs and the stuff that we do, we have a bunch of special events that are scheduled here during this month. Uh, this, you know, the camp, our campaign always starts on Hobbit Day on Bilbo's birthday and ends uh, on Halloween or near Halloween. Um, we're having our, our campaign ending webathon on the 30th of October, Sunday, October 30th. Um, but we have our first big special film film event on Monday the 3rd. So that's this coming Monday, uh, the 3rd of October. At 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So special early time compared to my normal uh, <laughs> my normal 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, and uh, and I, w- I am really excited about this. This I have to give Trish props. This was her idea, and it's a brilliant idea. Um, we're going to be having a discussion with uh, Tolkien artist Ted Naismith. Now, if you don't know Ted Naismith's work, you should go look him up right away. Um, uh, just Google Ted Naismith and Tolkien, and you will find his website, which has has all of his Tolkien art on it. Um, it is fantastic. He has been one of the big three. Um, you know, uh, Alan Lee and John Howe, everybody knows because they worked on the film, but always, you know, before before they received that sort of special, you know, media attention and kind of their, their profile was raised in the minds of worldwide Tolkien fans by their involvement in the Peter Jackson films. Um, Alan Lee, uh, John Howe, and, and Ted Naismith were always the big three of the, of the Tolkien uh, artists. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, uh, how many of our listeners know this, but Ted Naismith worked with Christopher Tolkien on the Silmarillion. He was the he's the official illustrator of the Silmarillion, the illustrated Silmarillion, which was released, you know, uh, several years back. So he did this, you know, a, a very extensive series of of, of paintings uh, of the Silmarillion. If you have the same edition of the Silmarillion that I have, which is the the sort of bluish purple one with uh, the sort of elves standing around in tunics on the shore of the lake, which is, of course, Quivian. And that's 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 one of Ted's illustrations. Um, so, uh, anyway, so, so we're going to, we're going to, we're going to sit down with Ted. I, you know, I, I, as soon as uh, Trish suggested it, I was like, that is completely brilliant. Well, who better, uh, to talk to about, you know, the, the sort of the visual adaptation of the Silmarillion than the person who officially worked with Christopher Tolkien on the visual adaptation of the Silmarillion. So, um, anyway. So we're going to we're going to we're going to talk to Ted. Of course, I want to I'm going to be I'm going to be sort of steering the conversation towards a a bunch of season two uh, things. One of the things that Ted does just supremely well is the envisioning of 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 landscape and places. He is such a wonderful painter of landscape and cities Um, uh, for I don't know if anyone has seen. He's done a lot of work with the George R.R. Martin stuff, and it's some of my favorite Westeros stuff out there. He has a a calendar of the, the the places like the 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 cities and locations in Westeros, and it is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it is it is uh, uh, it is just amazing. Um, so he's really really good at that. So I'm going to be really interested to talk to him about uh, you know some of the uh, some of how he would picture this stuff being and working, and we'll talk to him about sort of the general project of adaptation and everything. So um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. So 7:30 uh, on Monday night. October 3rd, we're going to be talking with Ted and for people who attend, there are going to be special giveaways and, and things. Maybe even uh, we might even be auctioning off something special. So uh, a, a special film film related privilege. Uh, so uh, so it'll be fun. I hope you guys will be able to uh, to 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 join us. So if um, Ted doesn't doesn't attract you that mystery auction will attract that's, you. That's so, right. Trisha. That's right. Yeah, it'll be good. It'll be good. So, um, 
Uh, so cool. So, and, uh, the, the, the other thing in the webathon at the end of the, uh, at the end of the set, we're going to have a special film film, uh, session there as well. And what we're arranging is to have a special meeting, uh, between us, the production execs and, uh, and the script elves. And, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna talk with them. And my, my hope and plan is to talk about the frame. I've been procrastinating talking about the frame and I cheerfully look forward to carrying on today, procrastinating about the frame. Um, because I, I want to, I want to work that out. I think that's going to be really, really fun. Um, we're going to work. I want to map out the frame for the whole season if we can, um, episode by episode. And, uh, we will do that together. So, I hope that as many people as possible who have been contributing to the script discussions will be able to make it that uh, uh, on that day. We're going to try to find a time that will work for as many time zones as possible. Uh, of course, in uh, in traditional Mythgard and Signum fashion, we have people, um, you know, from you know, from, from Europe to Australia and everywhere in between. So, uh, finding a single time where everyone can attend live is always a bit of a challenge. Um, but, um, Anyway, uh, that's so. Yeah, it, we're 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 thinking the time. Uh, uh, we're, we're leaning towards mid afternoon, as Nick says. So I think I think we can work with that in the webathon schedule. So so that's so I look forward to that as well. And uh, and just a, a, one, the, probably the biggest event that's going on during this coming month is the special seminar that we're doing. So it's a, a seminar on the new book that was just recently published, the new Tolkien book, uh, A Secret Vice. This is a new edition of the uh, of the, the the essay that he wrote called A Secret Vice, where he talks about his language creation uh, process. And there's a bunch of brand new material, new discoveries that were made about Tolkien on language and language production uh, that are uh, that are in that book. Now I know that although you know i'm sure everybody here who's you know interested in talking about the silmarillion is aware of the fact of you know how important languages and language creation was to tolkien um but i also am imagining that there will be a lot of people who might not find a book such as the secret vice the most sort of readily accessible and transparent thing on planet earth right so i mean it's 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 uh it might be interesting to be able to get into that with uh, with a little bit of help. So the editors themselves, uh, Dr. Andrew Higgins and Dr. Dimitra Femi, are going to be leading this seminar series where they're going to be walking us through and, and sort of giving us some insights into the things that they discovered and basically what have we learned? What new stuff have we have we learned from this book um, about Tolkien and about the way he thinks and about his relationship with language? and the history of the development of his languages. Some really, really fascinating stuff. Um, so that's going to start on the week of uh, October 9th. So not this coming week, but, week, but the week after that. So, um, uh, so I hope you guys will all uh, be able to join us for that too. So those are some of the things that's going on. Like I didn't even mention my, uh, my Lord of the Rings online marathon that I'm doing tomorrow where my, uh, where my burglar Grifflet is going to be going all the way through Moria from Westgate to Dimrill Dale in one day, um, which you can watch, uh, if you go to twitch.tv. And I gotta say, that is even for people that don't play the game because, yes. The way that Moria has been constructed is really fascinating. And I think a lot of the things that Grifflet's going to be encountering on his way through, I think, is just a fun thing. And Corey cannot, cannot not talk lore. Yeah. He can't. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's like an eight hour, it, you know, take out the Lotro piece and it's like eight hours of Corey talking about Tolkien. 
Oh, yeah, I mean, it's wonderful. And especially thinking about it's it's one of the things that I love so much about Lotro is the way that it the, the way that their adaptation, like the the same kind of adaptation work that we're doing in in some film project, really stimulates thought about the you know about about the story and about Tolkien's work. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, Robert, no, my burglar doesn't have a goat yet. Grifflet has no goat. Um, he uh, he will uh, um, get that I'm, pretty I'm, early on. I'm going to acquire like, him a goat. Yeah, uh, he'll have a slow goat. Like two quests in, so yeah, yeah but that's okay. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't mind slow goats. It helps me not fall off of bridges. Um, but uh, <laughs> anyway, and cliffs and cliffs and yeah. everything else you can fall off of, in there. which there will be plenty uh, in Moria. Uh, but anyhow, yeah. So I hope that you guys, and again, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a gamer. You don't have to be playing. Um, if you just go to twitch.tv slash Lotro stream, um, it's the official turbines, um, official, uh, uh, uh Twitch channel uh, th- that I'll be streaming on. And so you can go, you don't have to, there's no login or sign in required. You just show up, uh, and you can watch me, uh, live and it's, uh, it's fun. So, okay. Again, those are among the things happening over this next week. There's still more, but we don't have time to talk about it all. It's time to, uh, get... Oh, but I did want one last Lotro brief Lotro thing that I wanted to mention. Um, so this past week we have our, our Tuesday night thing. We do this every other Tuesday, uh, where we do a, we do a, a sort of a myth guard thing. Uh, in game where we talk about different lore stuff and explore different parts of the game together. And I was, uh, uh, here I was ready to, uh, uh, to, to do bingo night, which is a quest following a character named bingo Boffin. And, uh, and, and whom do I see standing in front of my character, but Bobway the elf standing there playing the Bobway theme song <laughs> on a, what instrument was, was it a flute? It was a flute. Yeah, I thought it was, it was a, flute. a flute. Yeah, yeah. Playing yeah. playing the Bobway theme on a flute, um, <laughs> which was really funny. Trish made a character named Bobway in Lotro. And, and he was in red. He's yeah. a red shirt. He's a red and shirt. Yeah, exactly. Is lost. His title is easily lost. His title is easily lost. Yeah, Bobway, comma, easily lost. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> it was perfect. <laughs> Chris Graham, um, Phil Menzies uh, actually composed a theme for Bobway. Yes. And I think he put it up in the discussion board. And so we're using it, it as the intro and outro music for the film film episode. Oh, right. Now. Yeah. That's right. So That's right. If you download one of the, uh, one of the recordings, uh, through the podcast, you will, you will, you will hear the Bobway <laughs> theme. Uh, <laughs> okay. And so that was, that was, that was a, that was a sort of surreal, fun film film Lotro crossover moment. Uh, if you want to see that, by the way, on YouTube, if you go, if you look, I think it's under Mythgard in Lotro. Mm, or Mythgard Adventures. Middle-earth or something like that. Yeah. Mythgard of Middle-earth. That's yeah. it. Mythgard of Middle-earth. And it's the Mythgard Adventures from this past Tuesday. It's just in the first, I'd say, probably, what, like five minutes, I think? Or yeah. Probably yeah, less it's, than that. It's, so, yeah, you can check it out. It's fairly early on. And, and, yeah. and the cool part is that Corey's face is on screen because, you know, he's got his video on. So you can watch <laughs> Corey's actual reaction live. <laughs> that was good. That was good. All right. Well, let's get into things here. So, uh, uh from last time, there were a couple things that were commented from last time, but some of them are going to be, we're going to move into just going, like a, a discussions of Melian, for instance. Lots of really good discussion on the uh, the frame, which I want to acknowledge. Really good stuff. Love it. Uh, love a lot of the stuff that you guys are thinking about Calabrian. I love, you know, the, it's just some, some really, really great material there. Um, we're, I'm going to save that because we're going to, we're going to wait until we do this, do our script discussion rather than 
permitting myself to derail our episode uh, six discussion uh, by talking about the frame too much right now. But that was all really great stuff. Um, I loved the million stuff. We're going to get into that in just a second. But I wanted to start with uh, sort of acknowledging a couple of the things that you guys were saying about Kierden <clears throat> when you guys were talking about Kierden on the discussion board. So one thing. Um, uh, someone raised a, the question, I forget who it was, as I so often do, my apologies, um, raised the question about should Kierden have a love interest? You know, should we should we add that kind of an element? Um, and my, I think, my understanding there was that the idea would be to basically be sort of emphasizing the, um, emphasizing the uh, uh, sort of self-sacrifice element, right, of Kierden's, uh uh, remaining his choice to remain in Middle Earth and what he's giving up and his separation from uh, from those who have gone across the sea. Um, I mean, I like the idea of emphasizing his sacrifice. I don't think I'm a big fan of the of the of of the the girlfriend issue. And the main re- okay, there are a couple of reasons why I'm not. First of all, um, I think I would like to use. I would like to use, you know, romance or sort of erotic desire sparingly, especially in terms of longing. Longing is such a is such a uh, deep and important theme in uh, in Tolkien's work. Obviously, I mean, longing is is one of the one of the big things that that happens in Tolkien's works. And so it's very natural, I think, for us to be thinking of that in in terms of you know romantic longing, um, and to be and that is a readily available to us way to convey some of the longing issues, right? That were that are going to creep up at, on lots of different occasions. But I think we have to be really, really cautious about how we uh, about how we do it. And my biggest concern. Um, the the sort of the, the the biggest disaster I think that we could inadvertently bring about by doing that um, would be essentially running the risk of having people think that like you know romantic longing is what it's really about you know or rather that 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 is the deepest and most fundamental longing because that is an extremely un-Tolkien idea. Romantic longing is a thing in Tolkien, of course, but it is very far from the central and, 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 and deepest longing. Um, in fact, it's like not even, not even in the top three, uh, things most commonly longed for by people who are longing for things in Tolkien. And especially since our own modern culture, especially the modern film tradition, tends to go there all the time. I mean, you get um, you get the impression that that romantic love is like the only kind of longing even acknowledged, you know, in like modern American film. It's like whatever. And, and how many times have you seen um, an adaptation of an older story, which is just basically turned into it doesn't just have like a random love interest planted in the middle of it. Right. But turns into a love story. Um, because like, that's what happens 
in modern films, right? Um, so obviously I would want to be cautious about that. Um, and uh, a good, great example, Tony Mead says, like uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, for instance. Why, why, yes, Tony, what a wonderful example. We just looked at that in uh, the Dracula Mythgard Academy class, of course, uh, uh, like a month ago. Um, yeah, yeah, classic example, classic example of how we have to how we have to turn the thing into a into a star star crossed lover situation. Um, anyway. So I'd want to be really super careful about that. And uh, therefore, of all of the plot elements, like if we're going to invent something, if we're going to if we're going to bring in a new story or develop a new character, give, uh, you know, give one of Tolkien's characters a new plot or subplot that they didn't have or weren't a part of in the stories. Of course, we're totally okay um, to uh, uh, to do that. but I want to be cautious uh, with I, I I I don't see us really adding uh, uh, romantic interests much at all. I think there's enough of that in Tolkien, and that if we just kind of stick to that and try to try to kind of remain sh- anyway. So so this is why I'm not a big fan of 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 star-crossed lovers. Um, and uh, yeah, oh, I see uh, uh, Alex. Uh, 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 now, Alex, how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, is it is it Glado? Which syllable is the stress on? And how do you pronounce the ea? This is these these are the things that I want to know about your last name. Rhymes with meadow. Okay, Glado. There we are. Okay. Thank you. Uh, okay, so Alex Glado was saying Kierden's crush was only put into the episode because the execs wanted to give him a wife to be separated uh, from and kill at Alqualonde, right. and we couldn't stomach it. Oh come on, people! You got to have a little more fortitude than that, right? We got to we got to <laughs> we got to be ready to kill off folks. This is this is the Silmarillion for crying out loud. Um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, no, we're good. Um, I, I don't, I mean, on reflection, I don't think that Kierden should have a romantic attachment at all. At all. I think, I think, I think we're we're reversing our decision because that's what we can do. That's what we, yeah, please. Right. Not only can I reverse my decision, I can, uh, I can, uh, I can like even refuse to acknowledge that I made a pre- uh, the decision otherwise. You know, it's just like <laughs> this is the way it is, right? Gaslighting, gaslighting. <laughs> That's what that is. It's yeah. Like, oh no, you're crazy. I never said that. Exactly. No, it's all good. <laughs> um, I do want. Uh, I mean, I I do think that we can we we should kill off people at the. At, you know, we do have to make sure that we have people to kill off. Like we already decided to kill off Olway, right? So that that's good. Um, I, the kinslaying's got to hurt people. I mean, if the kinslaying doesn't hurt, then we're we're not doing the kinslaying properly. I think that was probably our. Wasn't that kind of our thought? Was I think it was. Give him yeah. something to mourn. Yeah. When I mean extra to mourn when it happens, but but yeah. actually I don't know. You know, this is kind of Kirdan's home, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's it's there's going to be plenty for him to mourn. So I think we're good with. Hey, that. good. I see the script people not only agreeing with us but gasping yes. in relief. So that's good. That, that's fine. Good. I see we're all on the same page about <laughs> Kirdan. No, no, Nick, you didn't lose your mind. We're just reversing ourselves. <laughs> yeah. No, it's all good. I do that all the time. This is one of the really liberating things about. Um, uh, retaining almost no memory of anything I've said in the past um, <laughs> is that every time I come to a question, it's like it's fresh and new every time. And so I don't <laughs> have any discomfort with contradicting myself and, and yeah. it helps to reduce my ego investment in like the things that I've said you know, because I honestly don't even remember them. 
this is another answer because I know you've said this numerous times where where you bring up the thing about people asking you how can you, you doesn't it get old teaching Tolkien all the time? This is right. another alternate answer to that. No, it's yeah. new every time. It's new I every forget. time. I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the older I get, the fresher it becomes. Yeah, the fresher it is. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> exactly. By the time I'm 75, it'll be like reading Tolkien for the first time again. A whole again. new book. Yeah, exactly. Oh, look yeah. at this new book. <laughs> whole new book every time. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Very good. Cool. Cool. Um, the thing that I really loved and that I had been neglecting, I had been, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I had forgot, is the, the, the name The Forsaken. That is given to 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 Kierden and those who who remain behind. Um, that they take the name the Forsaken, and I completely agree with the uh, discussion board assertion that that name is is too good. There's too much pathos there um, to uh, uh, to to lose. Totally, totally right. I'm thinking there. I think that it is now one thing that. We're now as I as I'm recalling, and Marie will correct me if I get this wrong. It's uh, Hakan who is emphasizing that. Thanks, Marie. And Marie will correct me if I'm if if I'm getting this wrong. But as I recall, it's the people who stay behind looking for uh for 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 Thingol, looking for Elway, who take the name of the Forsaken because they're looking around and they're so that and 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 but you know Elway Elway moves on. So I. Uh, so in a sense, the way that we've constructed it, Kierden is not one of the Forsaken, right? Because he's not one of the ones who stayed behind looking for Elway. He 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 goes off to the shore because we're sort of giving them, we're trying to kind of clarify the different destinies and destinations and purposes of these different subgroups of elves. And I'm fine with that. Um, but I would kind of like Kierden to keep that name, actually. I, I think it would be... Um, I don't know exactly the context. Our clever script people can uh, can 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 put this into a good context, um, but I'm imagining Kierden saying that Kierden giving them that name. It's it's a name that Kierden could apply collectively to all of the Teleri that have remained behind, right? And here's my thought about that because remember, Kierden is the last of the group we've had this series over the last few episodes we've had this series of the elves that split off especially from the teleri right we've had the avari who split off at the beginning we had lenway who stays and hangs out with treebeard we had then uh uh you know uh, diron and mablung and beleg and and Celeborn who stay uh to hunt for Elway, and then we have Kierden, who stays behind while Elway goes on. So he is the last of those who choose not to go, basically, who choose to remain in Middle-earth. And of those, he is the one who is by the shore, he is the one who is the most Valinor-oriented of those groups, if you see what I mean by that, right? Uh, Lenway has stayed in the greater Mirkwood Lothlorien region because he's happy there. They're contented that they find a home and a purpose there. Um, the, and this is sort of reflective of the overall purpose of the elves to remain in Middle-earth, as we talked about at the time. Um, the, 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 you know, Elway's folks, Elway's devoted people who stay to look for him, they have a job too. They have a purpose. Of, they don't merely feel forsaken. They've chosen a different path on purpose, right? And their path is to look for, is to, to, to search for Elway. Uh, and to find it, yes, Karita, he's Valen oriented. Exactly, that's exactly right. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, so he, so Kierden is the one who I would think of the lot 
um, would be the one who is most keenly aware of the of of being left behind. Right. He's chosen it. It's not like he got forgotten on the key or something like that. Um, he's not left behind like a like, you know, like a suitcase on the tarmac or something. But he's nevertheless very aware of the fact that he is he has been forsaken. Right. He has been left behind. And so although he chooses it and although he embraces the destiny, I think his uttering of the name and his his saying of the name and even in a sense, his characterizing sort of the gray elves as a whole as the forsaken. um, He's the one who has the keenest sense of it. Um, And so he so at the same time that we see him positively embracing his mission, um, you know, his calling to remain there and become the shipwright. Nevertheless, he is. um. I, I think even more poignantly aware of of the abandonment. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so I, I love that idea, and I think that would be that that kind of struck me as an awesome way to end episode five, right? You know, which was which was which was really Kierden focused, um, having Kierden declare himself and you know declare the uh, the elves of. Beleriand, essentially the Forsaken, I think would be really neat. Um, but uh, yeah, so okay. Anyway, cool. So let's transition into episode six by talking about one of the other t- uh, uh, points that you guys had been discussing from previous episodes, and that is Melian uh, and uh, the nature of Melian. I loved the idea that you guys were suggesting about her being basically in line with um, Olmo's, you know, she's not part of the Valar discussion. She's not part of the Valar council, but that she basically agrees with Olmo as far as like Middle Earth is concerned and the elves remaining in Middle Earth. Um, so her coming that, so, so it's not that she comes to seek the elves, but that that's one of the things that prompts her decision to invest herself in Middle Earth and to go and set up her own little domain her own little Tom Bombadilian domain uh, in uh, uh, which is an awesome adjective, by the way. I, I just I, I'd never used that as an adjective that I recall. And that, and that was really fun. So I think I'm going to do that again sometime. Anyway, so um, uh, this is what that's what prompts her to go and set that up. But even she doesn't really fully understand the nature of what she's supposed to do. Right. The, the purpose that she's uh, that she's meant to uh, to have. Um, so. Um, so yeah, yeah, we'll, 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 uh, that is the thing I think that needs to get developed here in episode six, because episode six is when, uh, Thingol is going to emerge. And I think that we should do that mostly because after Thingol emerges, the emergence of Thingol will put the elves of Beleriand into a more or less steady state with one exception, right? When they come out, and they and and they you know Thingol establishes himself as Thingol Grey Mantle. Um, we will have Kierden and the Elves of the Falas. We will have Doriath established, um, you know, and we have Lenwe and his folks on the other side. The only one exception, the only the only thing that that is lacking for the stable state of the, you know the rest of these ages in Beleriand is the arrival of the Green Elves, which we're not going to have happen until the next until season three. Um, so basically, I think it's important for us to get to that point before the beginning of the season. Once we get to Valinor and then Feanor and the Silmarils and the unchaining of Melkor, the plot is going to be really Valinor centric. We might 
come back with the bad guys and 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 keep in touch with what's going on um with uh you know with Sauron and his people um back in middle earth um but I think that we're we're gonna be kind of done with uh you know Thingol and Kirden and 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 all the rest of the Teleri over there, and we'll need to resume with them in season three so I think we need to do this right away and and uh you know we don't want to wait like five episodes and then be like and then Thingol pops out I mean that would be kind of funny uh because of course that that would really emphasize the amount of time that had passed but um but I, I, it wouldn't really, it wouldn't really work. So, um, so we'll do that. The other thing, and Marie, I believe this was one thing that you were posting, um, uh, on the discussion boards. I, uh, and with which I strongly agree as I so often do with the things you post on the discussion board. Um, and that is that sense of danger and uncertainty about Melian, um, that the viewers can and, 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 and perhaps even should be, um, really, really, uh, um, Un, un, uncertain about what it is that he's finding. Like when he goes in, you know, it m- might not be obvious to them that she is really benevolent or that this is really good for him. Right. That, uh, because this is, this is as, you know, Marie, as you were emphasizing, this is a very traditional fairy tale motif, right? Um, not mortal man in this case, but you know, uh, anyway, guy wanders into woods, right. And finds, mysterious, beautiful woman uh, who casts a spell of enchantment on him, right? That's a story that ends badly a large percentage of the time, right? Um, and that's exactly the... that that Not only is that exactly sort of the world that Tolkien is evoking with this story, that's also the world that he is very explicitly invoking with the Baron and Luthien story, which is the parallel to this. Um, so I think that that makes it even more important uh, for us to, uh, to sort of go there. So I actually think it would be really cool if, um, there was actual uncertainty, uh, on the part of the viewers when Thingol vanishes, right? When he is, when, an, when enchantment is cast on him, that they don't know what's happened, that they don't know whether this is good or bad, that there is actually suspense for a couple episodes. And so therefore, when we see Celeborn and Mablung and Beleg and Dairon looking for him, um, that you know it seems very likely right that they are you know hunting in vain or that you know their anxiety basically you know our anxiety can kind of match theirs um to uh to to sort of see what has come of him and and uh and if things are well but in this episode is when they emerge thingol and melian emerge um and by the way obviously this is another one of those really obvious just like a a a manways Blue raiment was really easy from a costuming standpoint to make that particular. Um, this is where I think that he adopts his gray mantle, right? He needs to be wearing his gray mantle from this point. Um, this is the point at which he really he becomes Thingol gray mantle, and uh, uh, and you know takes up his kingship here in Beleriand when he emerges. Um, but uh, the thing that I think is gonna be hard to convey. Um, but I think, I mean, we're going to, we obviously have the opportunity for dialogue when he meets his people again, right? When, when, uh, you know, um, uh, what are their names? Beleg and, uh, Mablong and Dairong and Kiliborn. Uh, and of course we have Kiliborn as narrator to be able to tell us about this. Um, but when they come out and he explains to them what happens, we have, you know, the opportunity for some exposition there. 
Um, but I'm thinking that the sort of the essence is he's found his place. He's found his purpose. This is what he's supposed to do. And what's more, this is what Melian is supposed to do, right? If Melian came to Middle-earth with the desire of somehow blessing Middle-earth, right? If she's kind of feeling at, at uh, uh, you know, not like-minded with the Valinor-centric um, focus of the rest of the Valar and Maiar, of most of the rest of the Valar and Maiar. So if she's basically pulling a mini Olmo and coming over, you know, she doesn't have quite the influence that Olmo has being able to, uh, you know, to, to receive tidings through all of the waters of Middle-earth and all that kind of thing. Um, but she's going to, she's going to do a kind of a mini version, right? In, in, in a forest, she's going to choose a forest and then she will be to and through that forest. What Olmo is through all of the waters of, of Middle-earth. Um, you know, I like that. That really works. Um, and she can, you know, seek to protect it and stuff. And it's, it's, uh, it's all, it's all really nifty. But, um, uh, what, what, why? What, but, but I think it's showing that she does not yet fully understand the purpose to which she has been called in coming over. And when she meets Thingol, it's an epiphany. Not only, it, it doesn't just change Thingol's life, it changes Melian's life as well. Um, and their union, this is something that's, I mean, you know, this is something that doesn't get emphasized a whole lot, right? But it's a really big deal. I mean, Luthien choosing to marry Baron was a really big deal, right? Because she was an elf and he was a human. How much more of a big deal for Melian, you know, the goddess to be like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to become Thingol's wife and queen, right? And we're going to rule together. That's a huge deal. I think we need to make that a huge deal. We need to, to at least point to what a big deal that is. And because what it is, is it really, it's a clarification and a redefining of her purpose, of her own doom. What is she meant to do what is she you know now she perceives what she's supposed to accomplish and if you think about it and thinking about this led me to think about this for uh uh in a different way than i ever have before what does melian accomplish thinking of the the silmarillion and the silmarillion tradition what does melian what is melian's number one accomplishment i mean she's the queen of doriath right oh the, the girdle what she does the girdle. No, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Luthien. I Luthien. Exactly. Tony was saying the same thing. Yeah, Luthien is is, is clearly it, right? I mean, yeah, sure. She, there's the you know the girdle's a big deal, right? And and the the protect the kingdom of Doriath is a big deal. But at the end of the day, the kingdom of Doriath is a fleeting thing, right? Um, you know, Doriath has a good run, but uh, but it doesn't. Say, you know, it's just going to be one of the kingdoms that's going to fall. Um, you know, over the course of the first age, in a sense, Doriath itself as a kingdom isn't going to accomplish anything totally lasting. Um, so in what sense is her, from her perspective, from her Maya perspective, uh, you know, in what sense is her becoming the queen of Doriath, sta- you know, uh, fulfilling a big, you know, capital P purpose or capital D doom, right? Um, but um, the answer clearly, though, is Luthien. Think about Legolas's comment, right? About how never shall the line of Luthien fail from the earth, right? Um, the birth of Luthien, that is the lasting testimony. That is what Melian accomplishes. Um, Luthien is born, and through Luthien is blessed the whole future history of elves and men in Middle-earth, right? And, that, and we see that through the end of The Lord of the Rings. 
Um, and again, I love the fact that in the Lord of the Rings, Legolas comments on that explicitly, right? Um, yeah. Oh, Robert, that's wonderful. Uh, uh, Robert Brown points out how much weight this gives to Baron's line in his poem, right? That Luthien uh, for a time should be, right? Um, and of course, when Baron says it, it's, you know, it's it's easy to, you know, for that to sound kind of, you know, um, well, it's a love poem, right? And how many love poems have we heard that have talked like that, right? You know, like when, uh, like the troubadour is 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 singing a uh, you know a poem of his mistress and making it sound like the you know the whole creation of the world is justified in that it brought her into being, right? She is the center of the universe. Except Baron's kind of right, <laughs> right? You know, there's like an objective claim for it. So, uh, Robert, that, that, that's a wonderful um, uh, connection. Anyway, so. Um, so I think, uh, I, I, you know, and not, I, obviously we don't have to go, we don't have to spell all that out, you know, with Luthien and stuff, but, um, but establishing the fact that she, um, you know, she is, this is her purpose, you know, and that she and Thingol both emerge changed in a sense. Um, uh, he's increased, right? He's visibly changed, um, through his connection with her and she should be changed as well. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think, I think that now Hakan is asking a great question. Um, when he emerges, you know, how are we going to handle that is going to be like when, when Gandalf the white appears, uh, for, for, for the first time. Um, and you know, Hakan, it's a great parallel, right? Because of course, you know, we remember that initially they didn't recognize him. Right. And Hakan, you know what I really wonder? Could we parallel the other end of that? Remember how Gandalf for a time doesn't recognize himself, right? Gandalf? Yes, I was called Gandalf, right? I was just talking about that passage. Um, I think, wasn't it during my Twitch stream last week? Uh, someone was asking about that, Trish. Wasn't I talking about that? I have a vague yeah, memory of galloping around yeah. Forkel while I was talking about that. Um, it's funny because, you know, I've always done this because I'm such an auditory learner. Um, I will get flash memories of where I was, um, like, you know, what part of I-95 I was driving on when I got to that passage in the book before, you know, um, uh, so th that kind of thing will happen, you know, or like, you know, what, um, uh, wh what meal I was in the middle of cooking the last time I read this particular passage in this particular book, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, now <clears throat> thanks to, my Twitch stream on Lotro. I now have like Lotro oriented flashbacks. It's like, Oh yeah, no, I now associate <laughs> my thought about that particular Tolkien question with like, you know, this one part of, you know, even dim basically where I was <laughs> running around at the time when I was talking about it. Um, but anyway, uh, so Hakan, wouldn't that be cool, right? To have them emerge and have Thingol not remember himself at first, have him re not recognize them and have there be oh, yeah. that moment of, 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 of disjunction. I think it would, it would be, um, it would be really interesting, I think <clears throat> to kind of, to kind of handle that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway. Okay. So, um, we have a passage of time issue as so often, 
but I'm going to leave. I think, I think our script people can handle that. Um, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave the script people to handle how we, how we do the, the passing of time. So that's not kicking the can so much as passing the buck really. Uh, but uh, Nick, I mean the passage of time that he's been gone. Right. Because uh, he only kind of vanished relatively recently on the show. But we have to kind of convey that he's been in there for like a couple centuries. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a that that's an issue. Spoiler. The passage of time is going to be a big challenge over the next couple episodes <laughs> because we're going to have to accelerate and be like, then 10,000 years pass. But unlike <laughs> season one, where we could say then they lived on Almarin for like tens of thousands of years, we have to be like, actually, OK, so. Thousands of years pass and stuff changes during that time that we have to cover right. at various points. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. <clears throat> so, uh, so good. Anyway, so so that's the 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 Melian stuff. So that emergence is one of the things that needs to happen in this in this episode. Now, the next issue for this episode, Tol Erisaia. So we're talking about Tol Erisaia. Um, let me sort of explain a little bit more about the question I asked about it last time. My question was really intended in a really big picture way and my question was so vague and poorly worded that I th- it's I think why it, perhaps it didn't stimulate more discussion than it did on the discussion boards. Um I mean I I don't I mean I mentioned the book of lost tales thing about how Tolarisea was England. I don't at all think that we should try to make it England. Um I mean if anything we could have like a we could have like a an easter egg basically. I mean you know to have if there were some kind of like really distinct feature that we could get, like for instance, if one of the, if one of the edges of the Island had, had white chalky cliffs, like the cliffs of Dover, but we just don't comment on it or do anything else with it. It's just like something that people could notice and like make whatever they wanted of it. Um, but anyhow, um, uh, Hey, Marie with Ted just suggested that. Yeah. Very good. See Marie thinking exactly alike here uh whatever like that would be kind of fun but we don't have to talk about it and goodness knows i don't want to really invest in that you know i i i don't want to i don't want to i don't want that to come up at all um but um my bigger my bigger question is what is the thematic place of toll erisea because it's a like in different times, at different stages of the development of Tolkien's mythology, it, it's different things. Um, it was the, the thing of its being England. One of the things that was interesting about that is like it was fairyland, but it was a fairy, fairy, you know, it's like fairy that's been dragged to Earth. Right. And made a part of our world, though it retains the memory of the fairy that was right. That's how he was conceiving of it in the early days. And you can see that very powerfully, uh, in his poem, Criterion Among the Trees that he first wrote in, uh, in, in 1917. Um, so, so there's that, right? There's the sense of it as being elven home across the sea. Robert Brown points out the Avalon connection, Avalone in its name. Um, yes. Yeah, so the sense of like, it is the remote fairy. It is, it is the, it, it is the land of fairy that you get to oversee. It is the other world. Right. That's one of the things that it's also been. It's also been the land of exile. Um, It's it's also the place when like when elves leave Valinor, when they're not when they leave Valinor without permission and they're not permitted to come back. Tol Arisea is the closest they can come. Right. 
So, um, so yeah, I, I think, uh, th- there's, there's, there's lots of, so, I mean, it's, it's this, it's this halfway point, right? Um, you'll remember that, uh, Numenor is sort of <clears throat> not quite halfway in between Valinor and Mid-Earth, right? It's kind of like neither, not exactly one nor the other. Tolerasea is more so neither one nor the other, right? It's much closer to Valinor, Tolerasea is, than Numenor was. And obviously the issues there are different than the issues with Numenor. Um, but still, how do we, how do we want to handle it? And it's particularly, uh, it's particularly important, of course, in this, you know, since the theme of the season, what we've been talking about already has been, um, the question of where elves belong, right? Do they belong in Middle-earth or do they belong in Valinor? And then notice what we get here in this episode. We get a, a third answer, right? We get this middle ground. The place which is later on going to be called Elvenholm, right? Um, so how do we ha- how do we want to handle that? You know, how, wh- what of these different concepts, these different ideas that were that have been attached to Tol Arisea, um What um, what do we want to do now? Obviously, its significance can change over time. Obviously, Tol Arisea as it is going to be after the First Age. Um, is it's going to have different associations and different ideas um, uh, uh, connected with it than than we will see right now. You know when it is, uh, you know the ferry boat that is moored. Um, but uh, uh, so what do we? What significance do we give it right now? In my mind, I think there are a couple things that we can do. One, um, it complicates the overall what is the home of elves question. Um, and I think it could do that in a really interesting way. Um, it sh- I mean, like basically, where do elves belong is not just a two-body problem, right? It's not a question of Valinor or Middle-earth. And I think that this is something thinking about how this could interact with the frame, it's a thing that I think could really enrich that discussion. That perhaps Arwen herself has um, sort of fallen victim to, you know, polarized thinking here, right? That, you know, the thing that she could be being told here is that she's thinking about the question too simplistically. It's not just Middle-earth versus Valinor. Um, And Tal Arisea can be a kind of symbol for that, because of course another thing that Tolerasea must be associated with is the sea, right? This is where they learn to 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 make ships and to become uh, to become sailors, to become ocean goers, and that's a really big deal, right? The the love of the sea itself is what is going to characterize the Teleri, not the Falathrim, but the Teleri of Valinor, um, and so therefore. That's something that I think is, you know, the sea is not just the barrier uh, between Valinor and Middle-earth, right? You've got Valinor, you've got Middle-earth, and then there's this big old obstacle in between them, right? Well, to the Teleri, it's not the obstacle. To the Teleri, it is something like home, right? Um, uh, Exactly. So... um, so yeah, Karita's making me laugh by making Hitchhiker's Guide uh, uh, <laughs> comments. 
Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and it was funny. I was thinking about the Tolerisea stuff and I was like, oh, wait, I have a perfect title for this episode. We should call it Elven Home. And then I went back to my notes and I was like, oh, look, I had that idea like three months ago about this episode. <laughs> awesome. Confirmation. See, I now have awesome. two votes. I am so smart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like now I am I am I am and I am in unanimous agreement with myself, which, of course, as most of you can testify, is not normal, actually, in my experience. Uh, so. Uh, so whenever I do find myself uh, in agreement with myself, it is quite rare, isn't it, Marie? That um, that I think it's it's um, it's it's yeah. It, and th- this is going to be hard to work in, Marie. And I do think my sense is that the the, the frame is going to really need to come to our aid here because the people involved, like the people riding on the island and learning to sail ships and stuff, I don't think they're going to be processing it in exactly this way. Um, so I think the overall processing of what's going on here and, and the issue about where, uh, you know, the, to basically expand the horizons of 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 where elves belong and the embracing tall Arisea, in a sense, can be kind of can come to represent something like the embracing of the elves relationship with Arda in a different way. Right. Not again, not in a Valinor versus Middle-earth way. Um, but uh yeah. Yeah. Um, so, OK. So that, I think that's uh, the, uh, the 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 tall concept, I think, would work. Um, but again, emphasizing their love for the sea and that this is this. This is the steady thing. What draws them to go from um, from tall and ultimately land and establish themselves at Aqualande on the beaches um, should be their desire to see Valinor. And their desire to be reunited, you know, with the Noldor and Vanyar from whom they've been separated for so long and and who were their friends. Um, But I think that they should never, like, basically, to the Teleri, they should never be abandoning the sea. Um, You know, that really they don't actually move to Alqualande. They they move to the ocean, right? And Alqualande is just their becomes their major port and the center of their shipbuilding. Um, uh, Karita, I actually don't... I think I must have missed your interest in having Uinen interacting with the sea elves, which should totally happen, right? Um, uh, that should totally happen. So I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about that. Um, but... Um, Okay. Yes, exactly. Marie. Uh, Marie says it should be Lake Town esque. Lots of keys. Yes. Yeah. Having it built halfway out in the water. But again, even really kind of having it, well, not small, but they don't even live there, right? Necessarily. Like it's not. It's not. It's not exactly. It's their city. You know, it's their major city, but it's not really. It's not really their home. Um. But what about the Noldor and the Vanyar? So, okay, here I have to admit, now I've not heard the full rationale for why. My understanding is that our script people have decided to separate the Vanyar and the Noldor. They want to send them over. They want to, they want to, they want, they want to send them over on two separate island loads uh, to, to Valinor. I have to admit, I'm going to take some convincing on this point. I'm not a fan uh, from the get-go of that particular idea. Um, 
I mean, we already have two round trips, and that's already cumbersome enough. Um, what are the Noldor meant to be doing with themselves when they're sitting on the beaches waiting for the island to come back? Because it's not swift, really. Um, Sandcastles. Yeah, sandcastle. Really? Oh my goodness! Could you imagine like the sandcastle <laughs> competition among the Noldor? Right? Oh, that, that would, would be, be pretty awesome. That would be incredible. Yeah, yeah. No, I would insist on a super elaborate sand sculpture. Um, but uh, anyway, um, uh, helping the Falathrim build their homes. Yes, Tony, I agree. That's certainly something that they could do. But see, but to me, it weakens that. I mean. If uh, if if Kirden is like hanging out with the Noldor the whole time, then how is he feeling forsaken? Right. I mean, when they go, I guess. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess uh, we can we can we can come back and, and talk about this uh, later on. But uh, but I'm 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 not I'm not enormously convinced. Anyway, let's jump ahead to the uh, the other issue that we're going to need to be doing, because so um uh, uh, so, so the, we need to develop the L cause next episode is the noontide of Valinor, right? So I, I talked about the stable state in Beleriand. We need to get to the stable state in, in Valinor also. Um, basically at the end of this episode, we need to be, you know, this is, this is basically the close of the first half of the season. It's not fully halfway through, but we talked about how the halves were going to be imbalanced in this season. Um, but this is the end of the, you know, we're the next episode is basically chapter one of the second half, um, just as the just as the first season basically divided around the destruction of the lamps, which are huge, Nick. I mean, the lamps are so big. Uh, uh, so, you know, their destruction was such a big deal and therefore the turning point in that season. Uh, but anyway, um, so in this episode, the arrival, you know, everybody getting to where they're going to end up, you know, uh, Lenway, Doriath, the Falathrim. Uh, Tol Arisea, rooted to where it is, the Teleri at Alcalonde, you know, Noldor and Vanyar, um, where they are meant to be. That's got to be the end of um, of the first half of the season. And then we, you know, we move on towards the darkening from there. Okay, so this means, when do we have the Vanyar moving out? Because we had the Vanyar and the Noldor living together in Tyrion upon Tuna, and then the Vanyar move out and go up and live uh, on Tenequitil with Manwe and Varda. And this seems to me a thing that could, that this seems to be the episode where that would happen, right? We just had them arriving last time um, in episode f- uh, five. So episode six would then need to be the time when the Vanyar are moving up. So, okay, so. Of the uh, so thinking of the stuff that needs to happen there in Valinor, big picture stuff. The Vanyar need to move out and move to Tiniquitil. Um The Teleri need to finally arrive, right? And and uh, Alqualonde needs to get built. And we need to have the Noldor doing what they're doing, right? We need to show the 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 the, the craftsmanship, sub creation, creativity of the Noldor, right? And lay the foundations through that for the temptation and fall of the Noldor that we're going to get before. And absolutely, Marie, you are completely correct. Uh, we need to do Muriel and the birth of Feanor. So <clears throat> that, Marie, leads me to uh, the next point. Um, you can't do the Vanyar move out of Teleri. <clears throat> you can't tell a story about a whole people group, right? 
we need characters to attach these stories to. If they're going to mean anything, right, we need characters. Um, the the moving out of the Vanyar, if there are no Vanyar that we know and are sort of close to here, right, um, uh, we need, then how are we going to, um, how is that going to mean anything to us? We need to talk about the relationship between the Vanyar and the Noldor, right? How the two of them are growing in different ways. Um, and they're not breaking up, you know, uh, when they, you know, this is not a schism that's coming between the Vanyar and the Noldor. But how do we handle that? How do we show that? Um, here, well, here's one problem. There's one obvious Vanyar character that we have available to use here, right? Indus, exactly. Indus. Um, but, um... Well, we have Ingwe, right? But well, yeah, we have Ingwe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have Ingwe. I'm not saying we don't have Ingwe. But Indus, of course, is attractive <laughs> because she's going to marry a... You know, she's going to marry a Noldo. The problem is we haven't gotten rid of his first wife yet. And we cannot have in i mean so how do we ha if we if what we need is in this episode some kind of like friendship some kind of relationship between one of the vanyar and one of the noldor so that we can use that relationship as a vehicle for illustrating what the relocation of the vanyar means we can't have it be indus and finway right because can it be, then, can it be ingway and finway it could be ingway and finway I mean, they are peers now. That, right. I mean, we've got a little bit of stratification in the in the group. Right. I mean, and, and there could be some, um, not ideological, but philosophical, uh, you know, like, not a parting of the ways, but like, you know, Ingwe has different opinions that than Finway does, which explains why the Manyar do what they do and the Noldor do what they do. I don't know. Yeah. Just throwing it out there. Just riffing here. Yeah. Um... But you're right. I mean, just Ingwe by himself doesn't isn't really a lot to hang on. You it's, don't get a lot of depth on the Vanyar with just that it's one. Not, I mean, there's something there's something that like if we make it like a discussion between basically the kings of the two group that feels kind of I don't know sterile. Do you see what I mean by that? You know, like it yeah, makes it sound like po yeah. it makes it sound political instead of personal. Basically, is, right. is what I mean, and I don't want this to be. A well, I mean, it could be them hanging out at the, you know, the local, you know, the barbecue, the Sunday barbecue, you yeah, know, sure. in, in in lawn chairs, having a chat, you know, not not too, you know, kingly, sure, but but still, sure, yeah. I, I think you're right. I think what you're talking about is developing it, it, the way we would develop insight into the Vanyar would be to have some kind of story. With not not with those guys, not with Ingwe. Exactly. With like some it's, other, yeah. I almost, the, I, I find I I'm resistant to having it be Ingwe because if it's Ingwe, then it would sound like that. Even if it's even if it's personal, yeah. even if it's with him personally sharing no, it right. with his buddy, um, it's still him sharing about like. So I'm on the cusp of making a major policy decision on behalf of the Vanyar, <laughs> right? And that's not what I, I don't want. That what no, I want is no, like one of the Vanyar who's going to choose to follow him. Right. Right. And the issue of like, we so want you know, some texture. 
Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so they're going to say like, so we, the Vanyar are going and I'm going to choose to go with them. Um, but it's not like a top down policy decision that's being dramatized. It's like the I personal guess you choice could do of a, a similar kind of conversation between a Noldo and a Vanya, right? I mean, yes. there could be that kind of friendship. Is that yeah. what you're oh, Here we go. Mariel Gage, uh, Mariel has an awesome suggestion. Muriel and Indis. Oh my gosh. <laughs> hey, you know, that's. That that's possible. It's possible now. Marielle points out that if we ha- if we do this with Indus and Muriel, film film uh, season two would officially pass the Bechdel test. Um, but anyway. well, and also it could be a deal. You know how, you know how there have been stories about you know I forget what there was one with Susan Sarandon where she had cancer and she kind of like set up another woman to be or no. It wasn't Susan's right. Anyway, it was, right. you know, I have cancer and I want to find a wife for you before I die. <laughs> right. right. Well, see, this is the so, thing. Is that like, we can't, like, Muriel can't be thinking that way prior to the, to, I mean, unless no, it's no, actually after the birth. Prior to the birth. Of, after, as well, as after well, I mean, they could be friends. They could be friends before Fanor's birth. She could be like, they could be like best buds. Yeah. Yeah. And then after the birth of Fanor and she knows she's fading, you know, and this becomes the obvious one that she would like her husband to be with or something. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's. I don't know. That might be right up there with Kirtan having a girlfriend. So I don't it's know. Either, but anyway, it would either make Finway's second marriage better and easier to handle, or right. it would make it infinitely more creepy. Well, you know, it is easier to handle from the standpoint of it's the only thing. It's the only time we've known that it's happened, right? Um, that we know of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the easy part. But, yeah, I do get the creepy part, too. Well, you know, yeah. And we certainly don't want to be implying any kind of menage a trois at all. Or or, or basically worse, right? You know, like, uh, um, t- t- I mean, imagine the situation where, like, Muriel is on her, you know, death. Like, it's after the birth of Feanor. So there's, like, uh, here's, here's Finway holding their infant son and Muriel lying wanly in bed and her friend Indus coming to visit her and there's Finway holding his son next to his wan wife looking across the bed at her hot friend right I mean like we so don't want that oh my goodness no, no, no. we don't want no, that no 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 but what you have instead is you have a private moment between Indus and Muriel right where Muriel says something very you know vague like please take care of him or please you know something like, yeah she doesn't yeah. say I want you to marry him you know but it could be just please take care of him or right. Something like that, you right. know, and it's just the two of them, not Finway looking at her hot friend. Well, that's, but that's, I mean, my fear is that it might look like that, even if it's not what we intend. I mean, that's that's like that's like the the red flag I'm trying to avoid. Because you see what I mean, right? I mean, it, it could it could easily oh, could easily go that. Tony's way. got the idea of Indus being kind of like the caretaker, like the nanny. I assume you mean, right? <laughs> right. right. So then Finway <laughs> marries his own pair. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, it's getting better and better. Well, it certainly has modern relevance. <laughs> Right. Okay. Maria's doing that thing where she is she is she is about to reach through the internet and strangle me if I continue I along this, this line of thought. Once, once an episode is we make Marie write in caps. <laughs> That's at least true. Once. That's true. <laughs> it's, it's not a successful episode if we don't make Marie resort to all caps at one point or another. It's totally true. Um, yeah. I no. I, but basically, I mean, so I, well, let's let's face this squarely, right? Here's the problem: we can't, we don't have time to let a lot of time pass. At the yeah. very latest, the dead latest, 
Finway has to marry Indus in the next episode because we have to, we need, we need Fingolfin and Finarfin and their sons, right? <laughs> and we need them pronto. So, so Finway has got. Okay, Fingolfin and Finarfin, three minute call. Yeah. You're on next. Finway has some reproductive work to do in the next two episodes, okay? Uh, so we've got, we've got this episode in which to do, and this is where, this is where the contraction starts to terrify me, right? The, the contraction of yeah. time in these episodes. Yeah. We've got to do well, the, but the I birth think of Fanor and the death what of What you earlier is where the frame needs to kind of help us out, too. Yes. Right? I mean, yes. Exactly. Well, so back to your actual original thing. I, I, aside from all of this stuff, I mean, I think we can find our way through this. I do think there is uh, a good idea in having the in this Muriel thing happen because it, we do want, like you said, story Vanyar. You know, we want to get to know the Vanyar more. But do we want to introduce new characters? You know, with all everything else we have to do, having it be Findus and Muriel or Indus and somebody would be. Convenient. I mean, it would better. I mean, because she it would give us the opportunity to introduce somebody. She's already somebody we have to have. Exactly. Yeah, we we do have to. I mean, I almost feel like it's inescapable that it has to be Indus. And if it has to be Indus, then who else could? I mean, we could have her have a friendship with some other random Noldo, right? Who is neither Muriel nor. We got it on the other end, which is it should be Muriel because we don't want to come up with yeah new character like a random new character that we have to flesh out. So. But I think, you know, I honestly think we could. We have to navigate it carefully, but I think we're a good group here. Looking, this is I'm talking the royal we. I'm looking at right. your names there on the question thing. Right. Um, to navigate the rapids on that, I think it could be done. I think it could be done. I don't think. I do think a friendship between them it could be done without it being creepy. Um, I do think that having, you know, I, okay, here's an example. You guys are going to just. Give me the Bronx cheer for this, but this is out of Hollywood, right? Robert Wagner, Natalie Wood, you know, big Hollywood romance. Natalie Wood dies. Robert Wagner ended up marrying Jill St. John, which was like a friend of Natalie Wood's. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't strange, you know, it was that she was there. In fact, the way I know the story, and I don't know if this is true or not, but she was there. She was there to be like, take care of him she was there to listen to him she was there to you know and it kind of over time grew into a point where they ended up falling in love and getting married so that's not creepy i don't think that's creepy um so so something along those lines it's he's gonna say something funny i can hear him come i can hear it coming (laughs) no well first i was just (laughs) laughing because mario gage said can we please title this podcast finway's got some reproductive work to do (laughs) 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 which yeah yeah um, uh, oh, Nick Palazzo, thanks for making me feel super old. Thanks. <laughs> Nick says, I don't know any of these people. Yeah. <laughs> Wikipedia. Look it up in Wikipedia. <laughs> okay, so here's, 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 here's the thing. One thing we could try to do. Um, this only becomes, this, however we do this situation, it only becomes really weird really uncomfortable if it's ex- if it's very overtly sexual again it's like if he if we see finway you know having like adulterous temptation yeah exactly if he's <laughs> salivating over indus while he's still married to muriel whatever her state of health that's creepy right Not a good idea we don't we, we want to make sure that we're avoiding that but i i 
I think that we do, can. Do we want to, to apply it. any attraction to Indus prior? I mean, do we want them to have known each other or to have there be any attraction? I mean, I'm tending to think no. I'm tending to think it's not until after Muriel's been, you know, died that 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 there's really any like Finway goes, oh, hmm, I thought of her or something. Yeah, I, it's it's. Um, I think it would be interesting to basically like. This is another. This is another. Yeah, uh, I agree. Talking, by the way, yeah. this is another modern thing, right? Like another modern, like film, and you know, post, uh, especially post eighteenth century novel thing, right? <laughs> that like it is. It's like sexual passion that leads to marriage. Um, it doesn't have to be. That doesn't right. have to be the premise of marriage. Certainly not of elvish marriage. Remember, this is no. potentially another right. really great opportunity for us to really convey the message to our viewers. These people ain't human folks, right? These That's these right. people don't think the way that you... Like, yes, you can relate to their story in some ways. Yes, you can understand what's going on with them, and we want to make it comprehensible to you. But don't think they're you or you're them. And so right. what if basically the relationship between with with all three of them between him, between between Finway and Muriel, between Finway and Indus, and between Indus and Muriel is just fundamentally different than we would see among mm-hmm. humans. So it's not about sexual attraction. It's not about like I know I'm married to Muriel, but I can't stop thinking about Indus, or like I'm grieving and now I, I you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna like you know go to Indus on the rebound or what. It doesn't have to be like we don't have to submit to right. that. Um, right. And so in that way, we could if it seems a little bit alien. You know, the idea of his remarriage, even the idea of, like, marriage with Finway being, like, bequeathed to Indus by Muriel, that might seem kind of weird, but actually that might be good. Like, the weirdness might be good. I was going to say, I was going to say something about, yeah, I mean, you know, given it's elves, I mean, Finway, we don't have to, you know, Finway doesn't have to be portrayed as horny but then i thought to myself but wait a minute he has seven sons so maybe <laughs> fanor does fanor i don't know does. yeah, yeah fanor, fa- exactly yeah well, oh, fanor fanor seven fanor sons. that's right fanor no does. okay finway that's right i'm sorry right. see no sleep last he night planting. i know exactly yes. it happens i i, I make that um, slip but finway yeah i mean we don't even necessarily even have to show that dynamic you know that kind of sexual dynamic in finway either no. Um, I mean, no. I remember Tolkien wrote, you know, was it Peoples of the Middle Earth? Peoples of Middle Earth, it's in, isn't he? I mean, he he was pretty clear about sort of the elves' approach to things like marriage and reproduction and whatnot. Yes. Um, and that it's. Which it's, was quite different. Yes. Rather clinical compared to how humans tend to. Yeah, tend it's to very clinical. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, so. Uh, 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 Tim Fisher makes a great point um, that, of course, we do have the issue, you know, we do have the issue of the rivalry between, you know, Fingolfin and Feanor, especially from Feanor's point of view. And so Tim's right. question right. was, you know, would, you know, wouldn't then there be, you know, couldn't we have, you know, sort of the roots to this rivalry be in the rivalry of the two wives? Tim, I actually think it's really interesting to do the contrary, basically. To to, to have there be... No, it. In my mind, it would kind of make Feanor's resentment even more interesting. Even more, yeah. If mm-hmm. essentially what he's resisting, if it were actually his own mother's will that he's resisting, essentially. Mm-hmm. Now, that makes him a little more contrary than we might want, right? Um, I mean, we do want to make sure that Feanor's feelings are 
understandable, right? That he doesn't just seem like he's, uh, he's, uh, um, we don't want to make fan or just look like a bad egg from day one, right? We don't want him to be, um, you know, just born evil. Um, and so therefore having him be too far out of step with everybody else is, would be dangerous, I think. But, um, but anyway, that's a, that's an issue for next time. Um, we're not going to, we're not going to get too much into fin uh, Feanor's character development in this episode. That is an issue for next episode. Um, so let's not get too distracted by that. But um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not 100% convinced about the Indus Muriel thing. But it, it's it's funny, though. It's it's funny how this really big question, right? This really big, this, this having a, a, a friendship between Indus and Muriel has these huge implications for this central story, right? The central story of Finway and his two marriages and his children, mm -hmm. right? And the whole history of the Noldor. Um, and yet it has come about by a completely indirect way. It's just come about because we needed some friendship between the, uh, it, some Vanya, some Vanya and some Noldo. Right. Um, and, and we find ourselves backed into a corner cause we don't know any other Vanyar and we don't frankly have time to introduce any brand new Vanya. Uh, so, um, uh, so this may very well be how adaptation happens. <laughs> right. You know, we may be getting insights into how some of these maybe things we actually embrace about. it. You know, maybe we just maybe yeah, we like just the, embrace like it. Yeah, like the you know, like the like the Dune sandworms in the Hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> that's how yeah, yeah, that's my fear. My fear is that the friendship between Muriel and Indus is too much like oh. the sandworms in the, in, in the Hobbit, but. Uh, anyway, we'll see. No, I don't think, I think you're, I think we're safe on that score. Yeah. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> um, uh, so let's, well, uh, okay. No, it's, we're, we're already talking about Muriel. So let's talk, let's talk about Muriel's death or whatever it is. The fading of Muriel, the dormition of right. Muriel. Right. Um, right. Right. So, uh, great discussion on the, um, uh, Great, great discussion on the the discussion boards about sort of the context in which we want to put like the, basically the, the, there was a debate between do we want the context of her of her uh, of her death basically to be in like childbirth so it to be like unto a death in childbirth or should it be like unto death by severe postpartum depression should it be a, a definitively postpartum situation where she sort of uh you know withers and fades afterwards or should this be like the birth itself be the trauma that ultimately leads to her death and the um um the uh the movement on the discussion board definitely seemed to be in favor of of the of the of the latter of the postpartum thing rather than the childbirth thing, and that seems to me very right. I think we don't want it to be a traumatic thing. You could do. I mean, the thing that is the central element here, right? Um, why does Muriel like? What happens to Muriel? Why does she? Why does she die? Right? What kills Muriel? Um, and ultimately, it's a spiritual thing, right? She put too much of herself into Feanor. Um, Feanor took like too much of her spirit, and she she didn't have enough to go on with. She's she's right. dying of grief, except she's not grieving, right? Um, I mean, it's it's kind of ironic, right? That like the first death in Valinor is caused by grief, which seems like an oxymoron, right? It seems like a complete paradox. Um, I mean, how could you die of grief if nobody had died? 
Um, but uh, <laughs> exactly. Robert Brown says, I have given fire to the Noldor. I have kept no fire for myself. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, that's, that's, that is, that is the cause of death or whatever of, uh, um, of, of Mirio. So, uh, also, it gives it gives us a chance to have young baby Fanor, toddler Fanor, yes, child Fanor. I love that idea. I forget who brought that up. Uh, was it, was yeah. it Philip who brought that up on the discussion board? The, of, I've been, um, of, of, of somebody just mentioned it. Now. Fanor being it. Fanor being um, uh, being yeah, I think it was Phil. Yeah. old enough to remember his mom, basically. Um, right. You know, to have one of his earliest mem- memories being sitting by his mother's bedside as she fades away, um, going to Lorien to visit her. Right. It was Hakon. Now, if we go with this, by the way, if we go with the Indus Muriel thing, by the way, that means Farner will know Indus. And which actually isn't a bad thing. I well, not maybe, maybe not right away. You know, I mean, he's a friend. Of, you know, she's a friend of mine. But when she takes his mom's place, I think he could have like. Almost betray, you know, feel, feel like feel, a sense of betrayal. Feel betrayed, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, don't kids always feel betrayed by their parents' remarriage, right? I mean, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's always, and in this case, somebody they actually knows, you know, that was his right. mother's friend. I mean, he could have a whole thing about that, you right. know, she because was, you know, she, she, because he knows his mom, but he never got to know her. Right? I mean, he never really and he doesn't her. understand. He doesn't yeah, understand. and if we do the Muriel yeah. wanting to yeah. wanting to have end, you know, take care, he wouldn't understand all that because he'd be too young. So, he, which then would set the stage for him to also horribly, horribly resent Indus's children. Right. Exactly. Because in his mind, like he knows his mom, he remembers his mom, but you know, right. she probably is not talking. You know, so he because remember she right. her body is there in Lorien for a while, right? And uh, and and Finway goes to visit her body. Uh, but then eventually he stops going. Well, Feanor maybe keeps going longer. And uh... you know, I have an idea. You know, Nick Palazzo says we also thought that he would occasionally bring crafted items to Muriel's body and Lorian and talk to her. And my immediately thought was, we don't have time for that, which is probably true. I think there could be a whole web series going on concurrent with the TV <laughs> series. It's like all this other side stuff. You know, that'd be awesome. Absolutely. Anyway. We should probably not <laughs> indulge that thought though, because it might make us lazy. Um, but. Um, <laughs> But yeah, Marie says, Marie points out that Muriel's body is still there. It's there That's indefinitely. Right. Yes, exactly. That's right. Um, That's right. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So, so I, I agree. We do want that kind of prolonged sadness. Her death should not be as a result of a trauma, but of fading over time. Because, of course, this is also how we are going. This is our first glimpse of the issue of elves fading, the fading with her is not the same, of course, and it doesn't happen the same way. But, but this idea of like this kind of thing, you know, this, the death of grief and and end of end of the fading, you know, this is our first kind of taste of this sort of thing. Um, Along those lines, are we going to have other elves talking about this on camera? Lorian and Mandos, or I don't know. Right, ha- you know, have the Valar to- discussing it. Yeah, I think we should. Yeah. As thou are discussing it. it, that would be a really good way to bring in the uh, the kind of metaphysical situation, right? Right, right, right. Um, right. To explain that, yeah, that's true. With uh, the death of elves and what that means, um, because uh, I mean, basically, Muriel would be the first elf soul to come to Mandos, essentially. So, um, well, except for maybe those elves from, that got stolen by the Black yeah, yeah, no, I mean, there's there's the, but I mean, from like of them mm-hmm. there, you know, he's she's she's the first one. Because didn't we talk about back with the Black Rider, Mandos was going to come to Manway and say, guess what I found this morning in my hall? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
used to having this joint all to myself, and then what do you know? No. And, you know, every day there's, like, more. What's the, what's the deal? Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, so I think that's – but, but the thing – so the thing with Mary here, – here, here's my other idea. You guys can tell me what you think about this idea. Um, so why – why does this happen to Muriel? Why does she do what she does? How Because do, this has to be her choice. Her choice is involved in this. It's not just something that happens to her, right? This is something that she chooses. So here's my thought. I think that we depict Muriel's, and, and this might sound horrible, but, but, but bear with me. Um, Muriel is basically guilty of pride. She is foreshadowing the pride of the Noldor that's going to lead to their fall. Um, because and Feanor's pride, too. Exactly. And Feanor's yeah. pride. To be, like, that's how she brings about Feanor, right? Um, yeah. The Noldor are all about making things, right? They're all about subcreation. And she... She... I mean, what, what kills her? The making of her mighty son. Exactly, Nick. She's going to make the bestest baby that ever was. Yeah, that's literally what she does, right? Um, she she puts more of her spirit, you know, like more of her spirit, like the spirit that could have gone into the, you know, into the making of many of many children goes into Feanor, right? Um, and it kills her. Um, so ultimately, she would be the victim of her own choice, right? Um, so. Yeah, yeah, that, and and it's hard because I know that it would be. It's kind of tempting to make her sort of more of a, more of a, more of a, just a victim, right? It's more tragic to have her simply fading away. You know, this it's just like a loss, right? A tragic loss. Um, that there's there's sort of more pathos than that, and and that might conceivably be sort of undermined, um, you know, if basically we're sort of saying like, and she's getting what she you know what she asked for here, right? You know, she's getting her comeuppance uh, for her prideful choice. Obviously, we we wouldn't want it to to sound like that at all. But then again, um, uh, I think that it's um, yeah. Ex- see, Marie, that's exactly what I was thinking about. Marie says. Uh, uh, you know, any implication that she's a bad mom is going to be problematic. But let's face it, she's not the best mom. Exactly, Marie. I mean, basically, you could make an argument. You could make an argument from from the text that, like, the stuff that happens is, like, Muriel bears a bunch of responsibility for all the other things that happened. You know, um, she, she like, Fanor... Fanor is who he is because she, you know, in part because of you know, what she chose for him to be and her absence. Right. Uh, you know, so it's, there's, there's, I don't want to make her out to be the bad guy. It, it can and should still be a tragedy just as all of the Noldor falling is a tragedy. But I think that her death should be a kind of fall for Muriel. And she's overreached herself. Um, with good intentions, just as all of the subcreative work of the of the Noldor with good intention. But doesn't that seem like a very Noldoran kind of thing, right? Um, I mean, talk about like your Noldor parenting mistakes, right? I mean, that, that that's uh, yeah, yeah. Nick has an interesting idea. Nick says um, he was going to suggest that she gets flashes of foresight during the birthing process. That in a sense, she feels guilty for what is going to happen. And that we could dovetail both ideas. Yes. 
Yes, I like that. I like that. And Marielle, you were absolutely right. I was thinking about that too. That we have to that if if we establish some kind of connection, like if 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 we are using something like postpartum depression as uh, as even as sort of a metaphor for what she's going through, to then imply that it's her own fault uh, would be really truly horrible. And so you're absolutely right, Marielle, that we have to be super super careful about that. I actually don't think we should make it look like postpartum depression. I, I think no, we I should, don't think we, we should, should either. I think that. back to what you were saying about we need to remember that elves are not. Human. Elves are not human, right? You yeah, know. this is not this is not just a, uh, you know, yeah this this is not that kind I mean, of we're issue. Th- we're saying postpartum to to uh, to delineate between it and having her die in the birthing process, but right, right, yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. But and as far as the exactly. So and, and so but I agree, Marielle, that, that that's a very good caution that we should make sure that mm-hmm. even if I we agree. don't say that it just it doesn't look like that. Right. It doesn't look like postpartum depression. Um, <laughs> Nick, how would we illustrate that she was putting more of herself into the pregnancy? CGI. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I, I so don't want to think about that. Um, I know uh, that is that is. I I know. I mean, I think we need. There needs to be a way to do it. And no I'm problem. Not sure Wait, I've got it. it. I've got it. This is where we. This is where we get like the, uh, um, the in camera physician discussion between like Lorian and somebody else, right? Um, ah. Lorian, because Lorian is basically the uh, you know so he's basically the attending physician here, right? On the Muriel case, and so he can be explaining it to somebody. He can be explaining it to somebody. He can just he can just you mm-hmm. know you know that uh, you know somebody is asking um, what's the what's the the cause of death you know what what exactly is wrong with her and he can explain she put too much of herself even into, during you know. the birthing process he could be concerned you know he yeah. could be see that there's something not you know usual here going on um, I'm not sure you know it would. And how would we depict it? I'm not sure. Um, and also, what would we want to depict? Would we want to depict that this is a a combination of Finn or taking and Muriel giving? You yeah. know, it's not just Muriel giving it all away and Finn or not having an active part in it. I mean, the baby himself, right? Apparently, seems to. So I, you know, it's interesting. I'm not sure how we would do that, but I think we would have to. You're right. I think we'd have to do it somehow with third parties. We don't yes. want a lot of exposition, but yeah. Well, you know, I, I, and I don't really want to show the birthing process because I always thought elves just kind of went, "Ooh," and that'd be a baby. <laughs> yeah, you know? I, it isn't actually. I think a really good question. Uh, given the physiological difference with elves, right? They, they don't get sick. They don't. I mean, their right. their bodies are different. I actually think it is an open, obviously an unanswerable question, but it is to me an open question. Do elves experience pain in childbirth? I don't know. Maybe not. I, I, they might not. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I would be. And if they do, they may not even show it. I mean, yeah, who knows? You know I mean? Exactly. Be, I, I mean, I don't think you're going to have you know an elven woman grabbing her husband, saying, you know, you did this to me, you <laughs> son of a bitch. Exactly. You know yeah. I mean? Yeah. No, I don't exactly. I, I don't think so. I mean, remember that 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 I mean Tolkien does talk about like the power of the elves to endure suffering, right? So even if it does hurt, yeah, I would think the experience would be different and would certainly look different. It would not look. But I I agree. We don't. We don't. We don't want to be in yeah, the I don't think we room, wanna, you know, with with. Me. I don't think we, we want to have a commentary about that. We can yeah, no. draw a veil over that. And let, Absolutely. You know, um, but um, yeah, but, so you know, Lorian could come out and talk to Finway about you know having a concern about it. There, you know, there's something. Well, Finway can I don't go know. to him. Uh, Nick was suggesting this earlier before, which I think is great. That um, um, that they uh, the. 
uh, Finway can be going to Lorian and saying, "What's wrong with her? Why is she not? Mm-hmm. Why is she not getting better? Mm-hmm. What's what's the problem?" And he can have to explain that. That would be totally unforced exposition, right? Right. Because That's true. I mean, that would be there would be nothing more natural than that. Um, so, the yeah, thing we yeah. can show, perhaps. I'm not sure how we can do this because I don't know that we've shown any other elf babies, but we can show a super robust baby. I mean, just like, you know, the guy (laughs) practically clothed. It was like, in other words, Morgan's like, I've never seen a baby like this before. You know what I mean? It's like, wow. It'll be be just like those, uh, those, those really funny moments, which used to happen a lot more often than they do now, it seems to me. Um, You know, when a baby is born and they show the baby on screen and the baby they show is obviously like six months old. Right. I mean, it's like this enormous, fat, chubby baby. There Uh, you go. Yeah. 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 Um, we could have that. We could, I, you know, we could, we could uh, cast a six-month-old or an eight-month-old. Exactly. Yeah. He, he'd be, yeah. he could he could start toddling in like two weeks, right? But um, right, right. Yeah. Anyway. Um. Uh. So. So yeah, I think there's there's lots of uh, uh, there's handling the birth and the sickness and having Lorian can Lorian can explain all of the all of the things. But by the way, I just want to emphasize points that people were making earlier, which I think is really is really important to note because I think it's there. Um, Chris Graham was talking about how, you know, what Muriel does for shadows, what Sauron does, putting right. too much of himself into the ring, making himself vulnerable really that way. Yeah. yeah. And and what Morgoth does, pouring himself right. <clears throat> into the physical apparatus of Arda right. um, and right. dis- dispersing himself into his servants. Like you can put your own spirit into things, but it doesn't really end well. Right. Um, right. So, yeah. Um, and, and that's the other thing that I wanted to, I mean, I'm assuming that even though elves don't share a lot with us, that, you know, there is a mother instinct. There is a mother love. Yeah. And my feeling about it is that Muriel would be doing this out of her mother love, mm-hmm. you know, is what would be her motivation to do oh, this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, to give this to her child. And it just is, you know, it's too much. It's like you said, prideful. I mean, I you want to pour everything I can into this child. And but it's it, it's too much. It comes but to it's, it it's, comes to not exactly it comes, exactly. Comes it's badly. it's it's but it's mother love with a with like a noble in flavor, right? Um, yes. It's also just well, like the be. making yeah, of something. She wants him to be wonderful. the best. Yeah, exactly. she wants him to be you know a king of elves and uh, you know yeah absolutely. because he is going to be the she king has, of elves, right? He she is has gonna huge be aspirations for him. Kind of uh, what is it? Uh, Manchurian candidate. There you go. <laughs> right. But again, it's, but it, it's not just like the way that all like mothers wish for great things for their kids. Right. This is like, the, you know, this is, it, it's a, it, this is a sub creative work by her. Right. I mean, Theonor is to, I mean, you know, try, try right. this, try this analogy on for size, right. Feanor is to Muriel as the Silmarils are to Feanor. Uh, to Feanor. That's a good, good right. point. Um, Question for you. Are we going to see much of Muriel while she's pregnant before she gives birth? Because I was going to say this, 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 passion she could have a real passion for you know i want to have you know i want this to be you know the best elf baby in the whole world well i, I think mean, we're going to have to set that. it up there somehow yeah somehow. Um, i mean we want to know that she's got this like almost obsession yeah. it's got to come from her we can't just have this come out yeah. after she's you know like on her deathbed um i mean she can she can kind of talk about it some but uh but yeah yeah um, and, you know, that's a good point. Tony says they don't really have a concept of passing on kingship yet. It may, it may not be a, a done deal that he would naturally be taking over from his father, necessarily. Right. No, but um, 
but I mean, for him to be the for him to be like the great, he doesn't have to be king. Yes, the greatest. No, but the know. greatest. She was the, yeah. and she could even say the great because Noldor, Noldor's right. The Noldor's the, the Noldor. greatest yeah. artisan of yeah. you know exactly in, in all exactly. of Arda. You and, know, and she could go on and, and actually foreshadow a lot will. of what his right exactly. Yeah, oh his, yeah, how cool is that? Okay, so. I, I, by the way, I, I did. I we, we we moved past this so quickly. I didn't get to say. Um, I love the foresight idea. Love, love, love the foresight yeah, idea. And her naming of him as Feanor should definitely be tied with the the foresight right. that she has upon his birth, right? But how about this? She has foresight during pregnancy as well of his greatness, right? Of his she greatness. foresees of his greatness, stuff. and the things yeah. that she says all are true. Right. He's going right. to be the greatest craftsman um, that the world will ever know. He's going to, you know, she can talk about right. the work. Of, she can she can be basically saying cryptic things, preparing us for the Silmarils. Right. And right. then. Right. But it's not until the pregnancy she sees the other side. It's not until the birth. Yeah. At the birth. The birth like yeah. in I mean, labor, right. she gets yeah. the foresight right. of how it's all going to go wrong. Right. Of course, if and, we're not going to show the birth, I don't know how we're going to do that. But there's a way. She I'm can sure speak of it afterwards. She can speak of it. That's true. She can speak of it to Indus. To <laughs> Indus. That's just what I was going to say. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. She shares this with Indus. Maybe she doesn't even tell Finway. That's a good. Well, I know. I don't think she should, actually. I don't think. Finway, I think Finway should not be aware of it at all. Uh, Murray wants to tell Finway, but I don't know. I don't know. No, I, I, I don't think so. I, I think Finway should stay, you know, uh, I don't think he should know. I think he should. Because this has major implications for Finway's relationship with Feanor later. And remember, Finway yeah, is going does. to be loyal to a fault. And I mean that quite literally, to a fault. He's going to be at fault for his loyalty to, to Feanor later on. Um, yeah. And uh, so either this is him being sort of... We could do it, Marie, where he knows and he's just being stubbornly resisting the prophecies, right? And therefore he could be like Oedipus, bringing them about. But I don't know. I mean, I kind of, you know, the idea that he's sort of... The way that his character sounds to me, sounds to me more like he's the last one in Valinor to... Like have his eyes yeah. open to the fact that that and I you know, I mean I would feel like. duty bound if we if she told him now that he would have some recollection of her words later on down the line and I yeah. don't think he can have that I think well, you're no, right so, I think he but, needs but, to be but the much... idea that that Maria is suggesting is that he's actively resisting it right that he's he's yeah, trying to prevent it from coming could. true. Um, maybe um, that's the Oedipus connection that I was just making. Yeah. Um, yeah, and true. by prevent, trying to prevent it from coming true, like, so he's going to like heap lots of special love on him to like show that like he, he's not going to go bad. I'm going to, I'm going to really, you know, pour out my love on this son so that he never goes bad. And of course it's like well, his favoritism you know, of his son that leads him to go bad in part. So I mean, I'm not saying it couldn't work. I'm not saying it couldn't work, but what I am saying is that it doesn't feel right. Like Finway seems oblivious to me. He does. In the yeah. Silmarillion. Like that, my reading of him in the Silmarillion. Now, maybe it would be more interesting to have him not be oblivious, have him be like fighting the long defeat with Feanor instead of, no. instead of, uh, you know, uh, just not being willing. The other to thing about Indus knowing, and Indus knowing what Muriel says, Indus could pass some of that onto her own sons. Yes. You know what I mean? I mean, See, have them know. Have and then, them and hear you know, from their the more we talk about this, the more I am coming to love this idea of Muriel and Indus's relationship. Because 
Fingolfin and Finarfin have a much more positive, like from their mother, they would have learned love and respect for Muriel right. and her son. Right. Um, right. And if anything, there would be almost a kind of, there would be a pity mingled with their love for Feanor, with their respect for Feanor, which he would probably misunderstand and resent. Right. Totally. Um, <laughs> but she, also, I don't think she would tell her sons. You're right, because she would not tell her sons this downside. Right. Until much later, when signs are starting to show, she would she would because she would feel she would not share that bad stuff with her sons just out of the blue. Yeah. But no, when later right. on down the line stuff's happening, she's like, oh, I think I need to tell you this or something. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Nick says Indus could be desperately trying to save Feanor, but he just takes yes. it as patronizing. Exactly. Yes. But, uh, yes. but no. So, um, uh, Mariel, the idea is not that. Fingolfin and Finarfin would be suspicious of him before he's deserved it, but the other way around, that mm-hmm. they that exactly Indis would be totally pro Feanor for Muriel's sake, right? Right. She and would be wanting be that way too. exactly. She would wa- be wanting to so so they would learn from their mother love and respect and pity uh, for mm-hmm. Feanor for his situation, um, and that itself would rankle with him. I I see. The more we work this out, the more I like the idea. As long as we can get past the potentially creepy sexual dynamics of the of the initial thing, if we can if we can navigate those shoals, I think then we we this could really work. That's that that could really that that because I mean I love the footing that that puts Fingolfin and Fanor towards towards. Boy, and it sure makes everything else later so, so much more tragic. Fanor. Yeah. So exactly, and the tragedy of the fight of the fight, you know, of the mm-hmm. the, the the fallout between the, the the you know the the group of especially Fingolfin mm-hmm. and, uh, and and Feanor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think Fenway is like just in denial, pretty much. You know, see, that's uh, that's kind of how it. I would want to how I would want to play him. Uh, but but again, it is the question: is, is he act? Does he know about it and is in denial of it? Or is he ignorant of it and won't face it even when other people can see it? Um, it kind of depends. Yeah, because, I mean, that really is the thing, right? Either he's in denial. Well, here's another piece of the tragedy. It. I mean, Muriel could you know, tell Indus and make her promise not to tell Finway. I don't want to tell Finway. You know, please don't, you know, it's like make him promise, which is a tragedy in itself. Because if Finway had known, perhaps something could have, you know, maybe, maybe. something could have been done. Maybe. But you know, so, I, I don't know. I get, I, I'm kind of. I don't know. I don't. Know. I'm going to get a little too cliche. I'm kind of coming around to the other point of view. Like, I guess if he does know and he's trying to thwart it, but his attempts to thwart it are, in fact, bringing it, helping to bring it about. That is kind of a stronger story. Really, I mean, the other thing for me character. is that I just think you know, Finway not knowing puts him in solidly in Feanor's camp a hundred percent of the time. Yes, he discounts any signs because he has no foreknowledge. He's not been told anything, so he does. He's not aware to look for any kind of signs, and so he's he is misguidedly like hundred percent Feanor the whole time, which is tragic. Yeah. Because if he had known, he might have. I mean, I just if he's told this. I just can't see it not coming, even if he's in denial, even if he pushes it away and doesn't want to know about it. We're talking thousands of years here, right? I mean, eventually, it, it, her words are going to come back to him, or he's going to think about it. I just I just think Fanor needs to be bl- blindly for Fanor, and I think it needs to be another result of maybe Muriel's pride, if you will, of don't tell Fenway. Don't tell Fenway I had these visions. Right. 
you know? Yeah, I mean, it would be it would be a final bad choice that she'd be making, right? To, right, to conceal exactly. these uh, the, exactly. the, the foresight that she had had. Um, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I mean, I do see the other side as well. I just. Yeah. I just think this is right. Bad. Well, exactly. Maria, Maria says that Finway knows Fanor really well. It doesn't take foresight to notice his pride. Well, exactly. But he, I mean, yeah, he knows, but he's his son, right? right. I mean, you know. There's going to be a blind spot there. Yeah. Truth is, uh, parents can know their children really well and be yeah. completely oblivious to their bad traits that are perfectly yeah. obvious to everybody else. Um, uh or have explanations for it. Yeah. You know, there's always the, well, you know, he lost his mother young <laughs> kind of explanation. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, he's had a lot to deal with in his life. You know, well, he really we, means... Let's, this is this is a lot. We've we've thrown out some pretty major ideas here with uh, th- not only this, but the whole Indus Muriel Finway thing. Um, let's let people talk about this. on the, We only have a week to talk about on the discussion boards because, of course, we're going back to our regular schedule next Friday. Um, but... Um, but anyway, so so um, we'll 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 give you guys some. We'll, we'll probably come back to this at the beginning of next time, and it's not a bad way to transit. We're going to need to do, you know, uh, Feanor grows up and makes the Silmarils next time, anyhow. So uh, this is you know, a great we, we TM for what we're going to be announcing as the auction on Monday. I do believe. That's <laughs> <laughs> <Stop it. laughs> true. That's true. Ooh, I'm bad. I'm That's bad. Foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. Okay, so uh, w- one last point that we didn't talk about, um, and I, we don't have to discuss it much right now, but I wanted to, to throw it out there. One last thing that we need to establish um, with the elves in Valinor, um, the arrival of the Teleri. We, we need, uh, th- that needs to be personal. So first of all, this is super, super important. The Noldor's excitement when the Teleri arrive has to be, a big deal, right? The friendship between the Noldor and the Teleri has to be a major focus, right? They get all excited. They build Aqualande for them. And they, all of those things which get quoted right before the kinslaying, we need, that needs to happen, right? They're like swearing a friendship and we shall, you know, we shall grow in beauty side by side and all that stuff that happens. This needs to, this is the episode for that, right? When they arrive in their ships and, I'd like to personalize that again. We need a, I think we need to have a, we need to have characters as a point of contact for that. Um, the obvious connection, of course, between the Noldor and the Teleri is always daughter um, marrying Finarfin. But Finar, we don't have Finarfin yet. Finarfin is, <laughs> is, you know, still an ovum at this point. So, uh, um, we can't do that. So we need, but really, if I'm remembering correctly, we're out of characters. All we have is Olway, right? He's the last named character we have among the Teleri landing so far until we get a daughter for him and, uh, um, and we get a husband for her eventually who has not yet been begotten. So, um, uh, so it's gotta be Olway, right? So if Olway's going to die, Who's he friends with? Well, see, again, we don't have. Again, we need the. We in order for that to really. The only Noldor we have is Finway, isn't it? Do we have any other Noldor other than Muriel? 
No, Robert, we're not putting in Elmo. I said that's or not Bob happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, Mokhtan, that's a really great uh, possibility, Nick. Uh, Mokhtan the Smith, the guy whose daughter Feanor is going to go on to marry. We, he hey. is another Noldo of this generation that we have available to us. He doesn't seem right. like the most obvious, like, close buddy of of Olway here. Um, but... Um, um, I hate to add another character. I hate to add a. You know, now, I hate we, to add a. We are going to need Mokhtan at some point. I mean, having him teach Feanor. We don't have to. No, no, no. That's make... fine. No, I'm, I'm good with adding him. I mean, I mean, coming up with something out of with old, somebody, you know, yeah, somebody completely new. Right? I mean, I would rather yeah. go with him than not than just come up with somebody. I do think that would be you know because like with Indus, I mean, you know, we're going to be coming back to him at some point, so right. not a bad thing to have him. Right. And establishing him as the master smith. Right. right? So that right. We, when Feanor right. learns from him, I mean, I this would seem to be that. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of the 11th hour to introduce him, really, honestly. Kind of, yeah. Because I, I think it is probably not a bad idea to have him be with Olway because that way we don't have to explain or he doesn't suddenly just pop up out of nowhere when Feanor goes to, to right. you know, apprentice. Right. Yeah, Nick says they introduced him in episode four by name. Nick, oh, um, did he come up in episode okay. four by name? Now that was the well, that was the Lenway episode, wasn't it? Wasn't the Lenway episode? And the uh, wasn't it the the episode four was the Lenway and the Elway goes AWOL episode, right? Okay, all right. So he introduced Mach down there. <laughs> Certainly, I mean, that's the thing. Any of these elves well, that we good. want to introduce, we can always retrofit them back into Quivianen, right? I mean, we can always have them True. standing around. True. We wouldn't have to introduce them by name. They don't even have to get lines, right. but we can visually introduce them earlier on. Right. Um, right. So that's that's not a big issue. Um, but okay, so right, so if we've got Mokhtan, we could we could do that, and then have him. So have him working with the so showing the showing the Smithcraft of the Noldor in make so they can he can be involved in. In putting up uh, towers and in um, in and 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 they're making their ships right. So the uh, the swan ships of Alqualande are being made, and and uh, you know the beautiful towers and keys of Alqualande, which are going to be the you know basically they're they're creating the set that the Kinsling is going to happen on, um, uh, as the act of their you know sort of union, right? That's 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 kind of lovely. Let's get together and build the harbor of Alqualande, right? Which is where the kinslaying will happen. So that's kind of cool. Um, okay. That's right. kind of cool. All right. It is cool. It's cool. It's not in the sense that it's fun, but it's cool to, you know, in remember. Like, you have to have to, cool. In a sad yes. way, right? Like we're trying to maximize the impact of the of the no, tragedy right. that right. we get in the Silmarillion. Yeah. Like that's what's cool in Silmarillion yeah. uh, designing world, right? Okay. All right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, excellent. It would be so much fun to have Christopher Tolkien in the conversation. Well, maybe not. I was just thinking, I, I just tend to think that he would maybe enjoy the fact that we're, sta- you know, we're like honoring the book. Yeah, but see, he would maybe, I don't know. See, this opinions. is the thing. The impression that I get from Christopher, and I don't know if he has it and restrains it or if he doesn't have it, but coming back in full circle which is just as well because it's time to end mm-hmm. um coming back to what i started the episode talking about about critfic and the way that tolkien invested himself imaginatively in the works that he discussed um christopher tolkien's role as you know critic and editor of his father's work is diametrically opposite right christopher tolkien 
withholds himself very actively from making any kind of imaginative investment, right? I mean, he, he doesn't do it that much at all. Um, and especially in his editorial process in the history of Middle Earth, he, you know, doesn't go there. Um, I'm not saying in his edit editing of the Silmarillion he doesn't go there. He does have to add stuff and make choices and do things in the text That's of the true. That's true. But what I'm saying is when he's handling, like when he's doing scholarship, he switches that off. Just just switches it off. Yeah, uh, he does. That's right. In his commentary in the history of Middle Earth. Yeah. So again, I don't know whether it's that he just like, this is just a way in which Christopher is totally unlike his dad. Um, or whether he is like his dad and he's just really, really... Uh, disciplined. Yeah, disciplined in suppressing it. Um, and, uh, and Karita, you're certainly right that being an editor and being an adapter are very different. But... But again, like, he had to make choices, though. He definitely oh, had sure, to make. Oh, sure, no, I mean, he does, about. and and he does that. Yeah. But again, it's he doesn't seem to me even in the Silmarillion. I mean, even when I look at it, and you know, this came up when we were looking when we were doing the Lost Road uh, with the Mythgard Academy. There are two examples that we've in our in the Mythgard Academy discussions of the history of Middle Earth stuff. There are two examples so far where we see as, essentially the final version, practically the final text of the published Silmarillion in one place or another. Um, in the shaping of Middle Earth, we saw it with the fall of Gondolin. In the Lost Road texts, the Quintus Silmarillion, the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion, we see it uh, with the story of Luthien and Beren. Um, the published account of Luthien and Beren is based almost entirely on the uh, the stuff that is in the Lost Road and and that he that he talks about there. So, um, so much so that he doesn't even give the text of the writings that Tolkien did in 1937. He just says. It is the published Silmarillion text, except for these bits. And then he goes through and gives the bits that are different. Okay. Um, so, and in those moments, in those moments that we've studied, you know, in our, in the court, as far as we've gotten in the history of Middle Earth series, when we see where the final text came from, he's not doing much of what I, I don't think if the situations were reversed, if his dad were editing the work of somebody else, Right. And making if his father were producing the published Silmarillion from the writings of a different author in the same mm -hmm. way that Christopher Tolkien did of his. I don't think that J.R.R. could like, was constitutionally capable of doing what Christopher Tolkien did. I mean, Christopher yeah, I, Tolkien yeah, just I, kind of I puts agree. it together and constructs it. And you can see he makes some choices. Christopher makes some choices. And I talked about some of the places where he just like did his own thing. But I think exactly, Nick, he wouldn't have been able to help himself. He'd have, he'd have, he'd have, there would have been more of his own creative energy in it. It's just who he was. It's how he did. Again, it's not just because he was more creative than his son. It's, it's how he did scholarship, right? Um, you can, again, you can see it in the Beowulf, right? There's more of him, his own creative energy in his translation of Beowulf mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. than I think Christopher Tolkien would do. If Christopher Tolkien were translating Beowulf, right? Um, so I, 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 it's my opinion, it's my guess, really, that um, um, that that Christopher's just very different from that. That they just they're 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 very different in these ways. Um, so um, hey, I got a question. Yeah. Nick Nick yeah. just prompted me. I actually asked Nick, but I'll ask you. So Verlin got to sit in on right the script discussion or the presentation yes. that Nick and Marie made, right? Yeah. Did she say anything? 
she didn't ask a question or anything. And Nick Palazzo was talking about how terrified he was uh, because yeah. Uh, yeah. Nick, Nick and Marie went up to give their talk. Nick, wasn't it like kind of right after? Did, or were you guys, because you guys were in very close proximity to, uh, yeah, it was immediately after. So Verlin Flieger was oh my giving goodness. her talk, right? And in her oh, talk. Oh, and for those of you that don't know, Verlin Flieger is like a preeminent Tolkien scholar yeah, and is she, actually. She's currently Friends of editing family, uh, one of literally. Tolkien's works now, The Lay of Ao True and Itrune, which she was yeah. talking about. She talked about her experience in editing Coolervo. Uh, uh, and so, she's yes. been a friend of the family for... So she's talking about like, conversations that she's had with Priscilla, and she uh, she is friends with Priscilla, and she, you know, the, the young, Tolkien's youngest daughter. Um, and she's worked with Christopher a lot and, and, and everything. And then right after that, Marie and Nick stand up and are talking <laughs> about the Silmarillion film project. Uh, and uh, yeah, I can I, can, I, I can totally, totally see how that's um see I, I i've had my experience with verlin when i've given talks you know and she'll be in the she is wonderful because she's always made a point of being in you know in the presentations any of the signum students make and but she's such a nice lady she's yes. such a nice lady and so if i get no reaction or if i get a nice reaction like that was nice i i'm like oh she hated it i don't think she does that i don't think she does that she she will um uh, she's honest. She's very honest. She is tough as nails, and she will she tell is. you if she disagrees with you. Um, I'm ah, trying to think if I can now. remember a time when I heard her just make a polite nothing. I've heard her make a po- uh, um, sidestep. No, um, I've heard her say things like uh, so, <laughs> like uh, uh, um, when she'll say something like, uh, basically when she's politely expressing her firm disagreement with what you just said, <laughs> but not pursuing it, right? She's not going to be mean about it, right? She's not right. going to drag you out onto the mat. Um, Got but it. She'll, but she's also not going to be nicey nice. But yeah, that, she, she, she doesn't just be like, she doesn't say, oh, I, I, I think that's, that's, that's a really, if she, if she doesn't agree at all, she won't just go along with it. Um, she'll say something like, um, uh, like, um, I, I see how you could think that or something like that, <laughs> you know, or, um, or the most cutting thing I ever heard her say was there was this guy, she was giving, she was giving a talk and this guy was pressing, um, was sort of challenging one of the things that she said. And he was, he was pretty young too. He was like a, a, a sort of an over-enthusiastic grad student, I think. And, uh, and he kept pushing his point, you know, he, you know, and she would like coming back and she was like, well, you know, I, I don't see that in the text and I, you know, I, I can't really see the support for that idea. And he kept back and he kept insisting and insisting. Um, and then, and she just said the most crushing, but again, very polite thing at the end. She said, well, perhaps you have read the text more carefully than I have. <laughs> and I was oh! Like, oh, the burn! No, she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> the burn. So she will be she she will be gracious and polite, but firm. I, 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 so I've ne- I've never seen her just BS. I've never seen her just be okay. like well, uh, you know. So, but she, yeah. so we didn't really get any comment, right? I mean, there was she didn't ask questions, and she didn't like comment to anybody after the fact. No, 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 no. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I do think basically she. In a sense, I think that Verlin is is because she has, as Marie was just pointing out. I mean, she is in the editorial role like Christopher himself is. I mean, yeah. she's she's taking that same role. Her training, essentially, because of that, sure. has been Absolutely. to kind of 
Yes. Be as hands off with it as possible. So I, I, I do think that the Silmarillion. Film I have a fantasy that she's idea. on the phone with Christopher at some point and says, and by the way, you know, you might like to know this, that there's a group doing this and it's, it's actually quite <laughs> interesting. That would be awesome. <laughs> awesome. Or absolutely. To, it's, n- exactly. I was going to say, I, gonna, I, I don't even need to look at the comments. I know what Nick Palazzo is saying right now. Right. It's like, yes, yes, yes. No, Nick Palazzo just broken out into a cold sweat. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. But, um, <laughs> but, 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 but yeah, no, Marie, exactly. I think that. Yeah, it's not up her alley. This yeah. is, this is not up her, this is just yeah. not how she thinks. This is not how she's trained herself to think about Tolkien, essentially. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, you're right. I mean, and you're right. I mean, I don't, and I, I, I don't think adaptation is her thing either. I mean, even if, right. you know, the movies had been wildly wonderful. Um, I don't think it's her thing. I mean, I remember she and I had to talk about that, about the Lord of the Ring movies. She was not horrible about it. She just was kind of like, it wasn't her thing. Yeah, that exactly. That's always been my experience with her, too. She yeah. just doesn't engage with the films. No. Much. Um, she doesn't like them, but she doesn't dislike them in a, like, I passionately hate them. We're talking about the Lord of the Rings films, by the way, guys. The We're not talking about the Hobbit films. No, not just the Hobbit films. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. the Lord of the Rings films. She dislikes them, yeah. but she kind of cordially dislikes them. She dislikes them right. in a way that they're kind of like, they're like, I won't say beneath her notice because that would make her sound snootish, and she's not at all snooty. snooty. She's not, no. Um, it's just, she's not interested in it, right? I it's mean, just, it's, yeah, it's outside her ken, you know? It's yeah, outside, it's, just, yeah. It's yeah. just not something that really attracts her that's to take the this work. And, gives, yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, so. That, that's uh, my sense uh, is that she, she, so she didn't say anything during the, during, you know, she didn't, she didn't say anything <laughs> during the presentation. And it's my sense. She that, said in the room. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. She was, she was just, uh, she was just kind of, yeah, it's not her, it's not her thing. And she was, she was being totally non-judgmental. Um, but it's all. Boy, you know, she and Tom Shippey at, um, Miss Moot, two poles, two opposite ends of the spectrum with be. regard to that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, so much for that. Okay. Yeah. So we should go. Yeah, we should go. So, okay. So questions for next time. Next time we are, uh, we are moving into next time is the noontide of Valinor. All right. So we've got, um, uh, <laughs> so, you know that chapter um, of Eldamar and the Princes of the Eldalie? Yeah, that's next time. Okay, so we've got to introduce um, uh, Fingolfin, Finarfin, and their kids next time because we are we're in that generation, right? We we we've got to have. I I think that's got to happen, right? So, um, so my question: How do we introduce all the new minor? You know, which minor characters do we really need, and how do we introduce them for next time? Okay, Um, that's question number one. Question number two, what emphasis do we want to give on the early depiction of Fanor? We've talked about this a little bit today. I want to continue that conversation next time. How do we do? um, Because remember, we've got a lot of Fanor ground to cover. We're going to we're going to the episode after this is going to be the unchaining of Melkor. Right. So we've got to get him through Silmar through the Silmaril. So he's got to grow up. He's got to invent his alphabet. He's got to get married. He's got to learn craftsmanship from Mactan. He's got to he's got to make the Silmaril. So all that stuff needs to happen. Right. And we've got to develop his relationship with Fingolfin and his relationship with his dad and all that stuff. Right. Okay. so how are we going to do Feanor? through all these things. How is his, how is his character going to be? How is it going to progress? Um, uh, 
Finway and Indus. I was going to ask a question about Finway and Indus, but we surprisingly, to me, kind of answered this question actually uh, today. So never mind about that question. Um, but again, we'll come back to it anyway because it's going to be relevant. Um, so let's let's plan to return to the Finway to the the Finway Indus Indus Muriel thing. So my the two just to reiterate the questions that we asked before. What do you guys think about the Muriel Indus relationship? Um, and the handling of that, any suggestions or concerns or, you know, do you love it? Do you hate it? And then secondly, the Finway and Feanor relationship. How are we going to how are we going to handle that, especially as regard to that question of how much does he know? How much is he in denial and how much is he is uh, is, you know, again, how, just how do we handle his relationship with his son? And then my last question, uh, what about the bad guys? We, we we talked about this whole story we with do, Sauron and his oh posse gosh. and yeah. Gothmog and the 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 orc project and everything. Um, we're gonna leave that behind. We're gonna return to that. If so, when? Um, just you know, just want to throw that out there for just. I'm not saying we have to work it in next time. Goodness knows we have enough else to to cover next time. But um, just you know, want to kind of throw that out. Where do we? Uh, uh, where and when do we work that in? So those are the questions for next time. And next time, remember, comes soon. Next week, October 7th. Friday, That's right. October 7th is our This time. is a makeup today, so next week is our back to our usual time. Yeah, I will... Uh, I, I, I will say... It is not at all certain. There's a non-zero chance I may end up having to reschedule next week. Oy vey. Oy vey. I know. But at least it would... St- I mean... David and I'll do it. <laughs> We'll see. I don't know for sure. That'll last. I don't know. Last my minutes. in-laws are coming into town, and so I don't know what uh, my Friday morning is going to look like. But I think actually my Friday morning is going to be okay. So it should be fine. But this is work. This is work. I know. You have to do I know. Work. I know. Yeah, it's a little harder to convince my mother-in-law that like sitting around and talking about this stuff is is a, a real job. But anyway, well, it's like uh, teaching a how are you teaching a class? She doesn't have to know. The yeah, teachers. exactly. That's that's usually that's usually how I handle that. <laughs> Um, if I went into too much detail, they would never take me seriously. Not that they do, but anyway. Um, I was going to say, do they actually <laughs> yeah, take exactly. you seriously? <laughs> exactly. Anyway, <laughs> enough about that. So thanks, everybody, for joining us. Don't forget, uh, Monday the 3rd, uh, special session discussion with Ted Naismith. Come with, you know, we're going to we're gonna hold oh, it live, so please come with really questions yeah. that you have for Ted. And, and then, you know, we'll talk about some of his uh, – I'm um, going to go back and look through my illustrated film early and again before we do it yeah, on Monday night. Do that. Do that. I encourage everybody to browse his website and look at his Tolkien art. Um, would love to. Uh, would love to 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 hear you guys have questions and stuff about that. So, um, all right, excellent. So, uh, so very good. We look forward to all of those things. Don't forget to support Signum University and our annual fund. Uh, and uh, and we will uh, we'll see you guys soon, hopefully next week. Thanks for listening. Godspeed.